I'm Tony Curtis. Welcome to Hollywood Babylon. Saying the weird things inside the gold mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Tony Curtis on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So, good evening, and welcome to the fourth episode of the tenth season of Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, the Maven of Sleaze and Virago of Vituperiveness, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So tune in, turn on, and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seasons Inside the Gold Mine. So, good evening. I am Doc Savage, and with me is Mr. Lewis Paul. Hello, Lewis. Good evening. <laughs> Tonight we're going, I don't want to say a lot of left field. We've been doing more mainstreamish characters and character actors of late. So you wouldn't expect this one, but this guy was always a favorite of mine. And strangely enough, not so much from his movies. We'll get to that in a minute. Born in abject poverty to a Hungarian immigrant tailor, a young Bernie Schwartz learned one of life's most important lessons at a tender age. You can't rely on anyone but yourself. Making his way through adversities of language, impoverishment, deaths of loved ones, and even a stint in an orphanage, he turned things around after service in the military, using the GI Bill to fund his attendance in acting school. One quick change in name, and straight out of some absurd Horatio Alger story, he went a fast track to Hollywood and fame. Following a run of big-budget historical epics, he found a niche in fluffy, sexless comedies, somewhere between the goofy antics of Martin and Lewis and the pillow talk of Rock Hudson and Doris Day. Young, handsome, and affable, he became a darling of the teenage fan club set, to the point where he even spoofed himself on the episode of The Flintstones, voicing a thinly-veiled cartoon analog. Falling on hard times and still striving for stretch roles outside this typecast safe zone, he wound up shaking the tree in extremis with a dramatization of early serial killer Albert DeSalvo, finding himself critically acclaimed, but seeming unable to land further roles of note. Struggling with drug use, he still managed to bring a unique character and often riveting if decidedly off-kilter sensibility to films as diverse and often absurd as the Bad News Bears Go to Japan, The Manitou, and the Mae West Oddity Sextet. Turning increasingly to television in his later years, he used the sleazy Hollywood gossip show as a platform to share some wholly unrelated memories of his past career, trimming up enough interest to publish a successful autobiography, and launch a late sideline in painting before taking one last truly bizarre turn at the very end of his life. Join us tonight as we speak to the quirky, often questionable, but undeniably lovable Tony Curtis, only here on Weird Scenes. Week 81, Bronx Boy Breaks Box Office, The Unusual Tale of Tony Curtis. So, uh, anything you want to kick off with before I get into some background here? Uh, well, I, I, think he's actually, I think he's actually a really good choice for this show, because undeniably handsome. You had that young New York handsome, you know, part Salmiel and part young Robert Forster, you know, he had that, he had that look, that John Saxon too, you know, he had that look, that new young New York guy look, toughness, like, he seemed a natural, and I really like Tony, and, 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 and more things than you would think in preparing for this, I mean, I forgot how good he was in Houdini, and actually, for early film, uh, 1953, how, how really unusual that movie was, you know, of course, there's some like it hot. I'm sure we're going to get around to that. Yeah. 
But, you know, it, it was great and a ball-breaking sweet smell of uh, success. You know, suddenly, like, Burt Lancaster took a liking to him and, you know, like, put him in a couple things after that. Yeah, there's the, the comedies, the sexy movies. You know, well, we're talking early 60s, you know, those things. Like, with Cary Grant, of all people, right? So the unsexed sexy movies. <laughs> the unsexy sexy movies. But then there are things I really fondly do enjoy that... I'll have to admit, you know, I, I, I've seen a lot of these films, <laughs> but there there are some that are bizarre, like the Vikings. I don't know yes. if we're going to get to that. And But there is a, The Great Race. I love that movie. I always liked that movie when I was a kid. I actually watched it every couple of years. I really enjoy it. I can see from the oof that you didn't. But There are so that. many movies in here that are like, wow, these movies suck, but I like him. <laughs> so it works yeah. even despite the films in a lot of cases. And that's a, such a fun thing. And then, you know, there's the daring young men who jointed jobs where they tried to recreate that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But then him and Charles Bronson, you can't win them all. I really like that. What a what a fun movie. Anyway, yeah, we're going to touch upon a lot of stuff. And, of course... Of course, for our Brit fans and Brit buffs, the Persuaders. Oh, the persuaders, yes. Yeah, that's, uh, that's definitely a favorite. Yeah. I mean, uh, what, what was that term I came up with that I probably stole or borrowed from somebody, too? Like <laughs> Dick Swinging Playboys. And what, and <laughs> who would think that those two guys together would be a terrific team? I know, they who, have nothing to do with each other. It's such an odd couple. Yeah, we'll get to that in all. So enjoy. So uh, Tony Curtis was born Bernard Schwartz, the eldest of three children. The parents were Jewish immigrants from Hungary. He apparently spoke Hungarian only until he was six years old, while he had no real formal education. I mean, he did kind of go in and out of some grammar schools, if you will. Uh, But there was weird stints, like his folks threw him in an orphanage for a while because he figured they were so poor that they'd be better off as wards of the state, him and his brother. Um, He considered himself, and you can kind of tell, especially when you got into some, like, persuaders, that he was like, oh, yeah, I went from the school of hard knocks. And he learned that the only person who ever had his back was himself. Uh, his younger brother, Julius, uh, oh, there's a lot of bickering, of course, because of money with the family. Um, he had died at one point. Uh, I forget when. Oh, yeah. Um, he was hit Julius? by a truck. Yeah. yeah, Julius. He was hit by a truck back in, like, the 30s. And that was a real serious blow. You know, beyond your parents throwing you in an orphanage, not being happy when you're around them, never learning to really speak English or at a very late age, if you will. And then you get that happening as well. So, hey, at least it's me and my brother, so we're going to get through the world. Nope, it's just you. So at one point he says, you know what, I'm going to go join the military, which happened a lot in those days, you know, especially if you had nowhere to go or you were kind of the down and outs and maybe heading for rougher roads. And when he was in there, I guess, he figured, you know what? I always wanted to act, but there's no way to do it. Well, he's like, the GI Bill, at least in those days, would give him basically a free ride for acting school once he got out. He's like, all right, you know what? I'm going to go for it. And talk about a weird friggin' like Horatio Alger story. He hooks up with David Selznick, uh, who was a big guy at uh, Universal. He hooked up with somebody who was a relative of his, who happened to be a theatrical agent in New York City. And beyond getting the usual stage plays and whatever else experience and doing his little acting school digs, this gave him an instant in, because she was like, yeah, you should try this guy out. And they brought him out to Hollywood, and sure enough, he started showing up, and it was pretty early on. He was doing stuff like, you know, the Vikings and Spartacus or whatever. And 
went from this nobody to straight up to the top, just like that. I mean, a lot of it had to do with the teenage fan club career because, oh, look who's this young, handsome guy here is kind of stealing the scenes that he's in. But it was just like out of nowhere. He was basically, okay, I now I can speak English. I just got out of the military, and uh, I am now a Hollywood star. <laughs> it's like you don't hear this stuff. It's very weird. He wasn't too happy with... He got pretty quickly typecast into these sort of fluffy, like I said, almost like Doris Day film type roles, uh, where he was the boy ingenue. They're mostly comedies. Or, you know, not to interrupt you, and I, I think one of the reasons why they start to put him in a lot of those films in uh, this time period, we're talking about uh, maybe late 50s, early 60s. 60s. Yeah, I, I, I think because everybody knew that Rock Hudson was gay. Yeah, but but yeah, in Hollywood, and and you know she was a multi. And you know we didn't know. You know we thought <laughs> hey, Rock was gay. My but father I, thought Macmillan and Wife was an ideal marriage or something. I was like, really? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And probably, it was you know, a blow when he found out. <laughs> and you got Tony Randall, who was like a mystery to the whole world. Mm. Who knew? He fathered like 20 kids before he died. Um, joking, of course. I actually, I actually <laughs> do like Tony Randall, and I do like Rock. But I think Hollywood knew, and because, I mean, I don't know anything about Tony Curtis being whatever, but I think Hollywood figured out he's, he was like a guy guy, you know, like straight. So they, they kind of, and that's probably why, you know, cause it was, it was the, um, what do you call it? The agents, you know, who were pushing these, you know, uh, the early versions of uh, teen throb and 16 to put them on the cover all the time. Movie mirror was one of those, you know, mm-hmm. that, you know, and to put them in these fluffy things, um, which when, he would do something unfluffy was a bit of a, oh, that's unusual. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, exactly. And he got kind of sick of doing those, so he would try to push for roles that were meatier, which is why he wound up to something like, say, The Defiant Ones. But later on, he again made a big push, and that's where he went to the Boston Strangler, which really was his kind of make-or-break moment. And it was really actually kind of both, because... The critics loved it, but I guess it was too much of a shock for the rest of the audience because you see what happens to him in the 70s. Some of which, you know, was because he was doing drugs at that point. But then again, was he doing drugs because he wasn't getting the roles he wanted? So it becomes a toss-up. Obviously, he's also Jamie Lee Curtis's father. And and Kelly Curtis. Right. <laughs> Nobody even thinks so, but yeah, she had a bit of a career in the 80s. Oh, yeah, the, the sec, the sec, right? Yeah. Yeah. And... He was obviously married, which is another story that he kind of looked at. Jeez. Janet Lee, uh, from The Birds. Was, uh, <laughs> I don't know, my, my feelings about her are kind of colored by what, what Tony's experience of her was. But in the beginning, they were very much in love. And, or at least he was. Later on, he wound up kind of, at the end of his career almost, doing the show that made me fall in love with this guy, Hollywood Babylon, which was awesome. I mean, it was a really sleazy piece of crap. We'll get to it later. And he would come on at the end, and besides just being the host, he would start rattling off these little Hollywood anecdotes, like Larry Storch and me, and had nothing to do with anything in the episode. It would just be kind of like, you know, totally random, non-sequitur kind of like brain farts like you're, you're talking to an old man with Alzheimer's and all of a sudden you hear some great story from when he was 12 and then he just pops right back out and starts talking about Jeopardy or mumbling to himself or whatever 
that's what it was like. And I'm like, oh my god, this guy's nuts. I love this. <laughs> and then right around that time, he put out an autobiography maybe because of this show. And I loved the autobiography. So I was known as being like a big Tony Curtis fan. But it really wasn't for any of his movies, other than maybe the Manitou. And the real zinger that I had mentioned in the intro there is that right before he died, <laughs> he got remarried to a younger girl, which happens with a lot of his people. You know, look at Tony Bennett and all that. But he, last minute, even though he was getting closer with Jamie Lee and all this, and uh, I understand they had had this mutual thing where they kind of rediscovered their Jewish faith, and everything was kind of going cool there, and he just suddenly rewrote his will and put everybody, he, he made everybody persona non grata for some reason, except his wife. So God knows what was going on there. I, you know, it sounds kind of dirty pool to me, but <laughs> regardless, it was a strange ending to a strange life. Yeah, actually, yeah, his last few years, you also, which was the only time, uh, the last five or six years of his life is when he actually did the convention circuit. You know, if, I, if I, anyone oh, I does not. Oh, He looks so sick. Oh, yeah. Yeah, if anyone does not know what that term means, convention circuit, it's, you know, when actors who were later in life, and not, not you know, all of them, um, you know, they, they hook up with it agent in parenthesis you know some guy that gets some jobs at conventions you know they get a hotel decent food for a weekend and all they gotta do is sign autographs the agent takes the money gives them you know gives them their their vig the old mafia talk and tony started doing that and uh, it's unfortunately though he started to age badly the last few years of his life and uh, he also decided because the guy was known for his full head of hair Curly and even in the persuaders, we'll talk about that. Also, well, um, remember he lost his hair pretty early on because if you look at stuff around the time of the Boston Strangler, even you can see his hair is thinning. It's thinning, and so he did the Tony Bennett and got that big fake wig that he wore for the rest of his career. But, but they look good. <laughs> no, they, they actually did. They look good for one of those wigs. Shatner, I guess, is the same idea. You know, he's not like a a dog shit toupee. It's like okay, well, it's too bad. But when I saw him at the last convention he did, I think, uh, which was one of yours. He was there in a cowboy hat, wrapped up and bundled up like a mummy, basically, because he was, you know, cold and whatever. And I actually did not go to see him get an autograph and a photo because I was like, he looks too sick. It's, yeah. like, it's not like, okay, let me go and here's the... You, you always get these things where you're just like, ah, you know, you get to hang it on your wall, you got a picture. And it's like, oh, yeah, I met this guy and it was cool and whatever. I had this memory of, you know, bullshit with him. He looked like he was totally out of it. Somebody, they were practically moving his hand to sign autographs. I'm like, that's just tragic. So it was sad. Yeah, yeah. It is. Okay, let's go. Where you start? All right, with? so yeah. I was going to start with Houdini, but so did you want to do any before that? Uh, let me see, let me see, let me see. Lots of westerns and oddball. I was a shoplifter? <laughs> I see that title in there, like what? No, Houdini's good. Okay, so depressing doctor drama about the infamous escape artist. Tony starts with wife Janet Lee, and they're both young and attractive and seem to have some chemistry at this point. Which becomes a bit odd, as I mentioned earlier, when you take into account Tony's later comments that however famous he was, whatever he did, he was never good enough for her. And they actually got divorced around the time of Taris Bulba, so yeah, my, my image of her is not a good one. Between that and Hitchcock, which is another story if you were to do a Hitchcock show, I'm going to tell you that story. In any case, 
Now, the story of this film is pretty by the book. He's got an eye for the pretty carny audience member right from the start, but she keeps saying no, despite turning up at one side show or stage job he does after another, until she changes her mind and says yes, in spite of her beleaguered boyfriend's pushy protests. As a couple, she pushes the young Houdini into a, quote, real job, working with a locksmith and safe maker, whereupon he learns a new art and emerges as more escape artist than stage magician. By the time he develops his infamous chain trunk in an icy river stunt, he escapes but winds up sucked downstream and claims to have heard his mother's voice, leading him to a break in the ice that lets him survive at what turns out to be the exact hour of her death. From here, he blows all his money and efforts on this crackpot fad of the film to sneak through the Warring Twenties, actually, went spiritualism, expending all his energies in trying to contact Mom from the great beyond until out of practice and suffering from a bad appendix, he's coerced into returning to the stage and retrying his trunk in the river stunt. Whoops, there it is. Curtis is his usual likable, goofy self here, and the usually detestable Lee comes off more sweet and charming than usual, possibly because this was still early in their marriage and she may actually have loved the guy back then. Even so, despite some childhood memories of seeing this and being horrified by his death by misadventure, what a crazy stunt that was, this really is just another example of the sort of depressing, overdone drama shit mainstream audiences always gravitated towards and throw critical praise and big award ceremonies for. In other words, the sort of shit you should avoid at all costs. You'll be happier spending your time something stupid and fun like an Andy Sedaris film, in my opinion. And more than I already felt before reading up in this film, fuck Janet Lee. Damn, no talent. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, you're so harsh on everybody lately. It's probably because you're getting older. Anyway, <laughs> um, a couple of things. I liked this movie. I thought it was like, I don't think it's all light and fluffy like you just said my opinion is i i, I liked it because it was kind of weird and a bit dark in places for 1953 that's a bit unusual also here's something of note you know you were just speaking of you know he wanted to change his you know his uh, uh the way he was coming across to audiences and you know etc one of the producers on this movie beside george powell yes that george powell was berman swartz think about it his name is bernard so Tony, going back to his real name, but kind of fudging it a little bit, was one of the producers on this movie. So he really wanted to do this picture. It's also written by Philip Jordan, based on a book about Houdini by some other guy. But the thing I thought was really interesting, Philip Jordan wrote World Without End, a couple of really good sci-fi things. So, you know, beside being a, a, a novelist, he was dabbling in screenwriting. And uh, I liked it. it for its dark moments. Also, you know, it's pretty close. It doesn't have a happy Hollywood ending. You know, the fucking no. guy dies at the end. So you're, yep. taking, you're taking your Hollywood screen idol, Curtis, your rising Hollywood ingenue, Leigh, right? And, and are, are they married at this time? I think so. And yeah, so yeah. they're co-starring in this picture. They got a nice romantic poster, you know, blah, blah, blah. I probably got the big push from Paramount. He's at the top of his game, be, oh, coming up to be, the, not yet quite, but coming up to be the top of his game as, you know, cover of fan magazines for the girls. And yet they stayed pretty close to Houdini life. Of course, Hollywood Eyes version. I get that. But the film ended with him passing, which I thought, hmm, that's ballsy for that time period. So you, you disliked it more than I did. I don't think it's entirely terrible. Next. What is going on in the background? Is it like some piano playing and like new agey stuff? And then I heard some like kids crying. <laughs> uh, I, that's the kids in the basement. They're all chained. Oh, wow. They're chained up and I have them doing Rachmaninoff. <laughs> I feed them every three days. So, you know, they have to really, 
No, no, it's <laughs> it's it's a nice day, and <laughs> and the people out in the back are doing stuff. They're probably all gonna die because all those. I look out my back window, and all these kids. My window's closed, by the way. Yeah. And all those kids are running around. They have probably friends or family and stuff, and they're all running around throwing balls. Oh, they're at a measles party. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's no, it's it's like you know. They're like they're young, let them enjoy themselves. My little baby's dead. COVID oh, outbreak. Yeah. Here you go. Yeah, COVID <laughs> outbreak. All fourteen of my fucking kids are dead. Well, you don't listen to anybody. Uh, <laughs> sorry, we segwayed. We do that sometimes. It'd be great if we did a audio commentary for DVD. They were like, we have to cut this fourteen-hour version down. <laughs> <laughs> So he does a number of other odd films here, uh, including Trapeze, which I believe was a Burt Lancaster film. Oh, my friend, you skipped the famous one. He was quoted for years. Which one? The... Was it the Black Hill of Falworth? Yes. I just want to mention it briefly. Yonder lies the palace of my father. Well, that that was that was blown out of proportion, of course. <laughs> yeah, you got this New York guy, and it's a, a, sword, a sword fighting, you know, right? Yeah. And uh, again, retained for Janet Leigh. Barbara Rush is in this, you know. That's right. Torrent Thatcher, also who were in Houdini. Uh, Craig Hill is in this. A lot of interesting people. I think it's overlong. You know, it's... Uh, <laughs> oh, my God. I'm not going to even describe the bizarre... Oh, I hear the children. I hear the children play. <laughs> they'll be quiet. That, they're no! screaming. They want to get out of their chains. I don't know. They're, let them have fun before they die. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Lewis is sinister. Um, <laughs> Chody's dialogue is way, way misquoted for this film. Where he goes, Yonder, there's the father of my castle, or castle of my father, whatever it is. And he actually doesn't say it like that, but because... <laughs> He was New York, and they always thought he spoke that, like that. It was a tribute to him. Let's go to Trapeze. Yeah, Trapeze, go ahead. Uh, I didn't bother watching. I've seen it in the past, though. And I remembered Burt Lancaster. I didn't really remember Tony in it, so it must have been a small part. No, Tony has a very large part, actually. Okay, well, go for it. I, I don't want to be, like, you know, large part. You know, <laughs> Burt Lancaster allegedly had a, mm, yeah, so. <clears throat> Yeah, I'd heard Maybe, that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, you heard that. So, I mean, first of all, it's a Carol Reed film, which is really interesting because, you know, oh, man, uh, da, 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 Odd Man Out, The Third Man, Our Man in Havana. So, you know, some heavy-hitting pictures. And he does this odd picture with Burt Lancaster really took a liking to Tony Tony Curtis. And, and I'm hoping it just goes like, take them under my wing kind of thing. They work in a circus. They're trapeze artists. Tony's this young branch guy, and Bert's just the aerial star. He's getting older. Fucking 1956. Can you imagine? Like, he's, he was around for, like, decades, this guy. I like Bert Lancaster. Yeah, I could tell not so much you, but Gina Lola Bridget is the hottie in this. And, wow, right? Mm-hmm. And That's so, why I watched it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know, Bert's in fine physical condition, and and so is Tony. And it's it's just like romance under the big top kind of thing, you know. And you know, he has a protege, and 
Bert's getting older and the protege loves the girl and then there's a love triangle, yada, yada. I, I remember seeing it and I remember it wasn't horrible. It was just very strange. So um, then he does Mr. Corey, which I don't remember the film, but I do remember the Simon and Garfunkel song, so we know what that's about. Those of you who don't, go ahead and check it out. It's a, a depressing but meaningful song about life <laughs> uh, and how not to be. In um, 1957, he does Sweet Smell of Success. Yeah. You know, when this came out on Broadway in the early millennium, featuring posts like Michael J. Fox, oh wait, the secret of my success. I ignored this as just another cheesy feel-good comedy. Oh boy, was I wrong. A dark, serial comic at best character piece bordering on film noir. This one's effectively about a famous radio and newspaper uh, gossip columnist, Walter Winchell, a man who was unbelievably powerful in a way that even the top critics in Hollywood parasites like Siskel and Ebert, Gene Shalit, Rona Barrett, and TMZ could hardly even dream to aspire to. That said, it's hardly a straight docudrama, but a character assassination that shows the Winchell analog, Burt Lancaster, to be a petty, nasty, vindictive man willing to ruin lives in pursuit of the next tidbit. Here he decides an up-and-coming jazz guitarist isn't good enough for his little sister, who he may have a bit of a thing for, and sets out to destroy his life using his connections and pulling in favors from sycophants, one of whom is press agent Tony Curtis. Curtis throws his teeny bopper fangirl audience for a real loop here, playing a sleazy, utterly amoral little man who can never aspire to be much more than a yes-man middle management type, but is willing to sell his soul in the lives of anyone surrounding. Setups, frames, planting evidence, spreading disinformation and propaganda, pimping, using dirty cops is a real piece of work. It's relentlessly dark, and let me preface this by saying that, honestly, I never cared for Lancaster, but Tony mops the floor with him. That's no question. Do I recommend this film? No. It's dark. It's well lit. It's very 50s noir with a jazzy score. The feel of a more lavish Naked City episode, I guess. The cat, the dialogue is catty but snappy. But it's not really film noir. It's hardly the sort of thing that you really want to view more than once in life. It's a turgid melodrama and a nasty, cynical view of the way the world runs. But if you're looking for a film where Tony Curtis displays some serious acting chops, yeah, this one's a good bet. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's a hard... It's good. It's good. I, 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 undeniably a good film, but yeah, you, you hit all the right notes about... It's hard to recommend. Of, it's hard to recommend, and not only is Tony really good, and he finally gets the kind of role he's been trying to scratch his way out of from the uh, heartthrob romances that the, the studio's been putting him in, but Bert Lancaster, who I, I, I mentioned earlier, who seemed to be taking a shining to him, you know, really kind of like took him under his arm and says, okay, I'm going to second bill you in this. And it's a rough picture to watch because, yeah, it's tough. But I have to say that Burt Lancaster is also pretty damn terrific in this as this evil fuck. <laughs> <laughs> you think Winchell was really that bad? He is. <laughs> but this Tony's next picture, I believe the next year, is Pitching in the Bazaar. Yeah, the Vikings. It's almost right on top of this. Still another of these pointlessly turgid, big-money 50s, quote, adventure films. It's definitely watchable, but it's hopelessly dated and kind of irritating at points. In a stirring example of Republican politics in action, Tony Curtis is the bastard son of the King of the Vikings, that handsome stutter in his Borgnine, and the Queen of England, who Borgnine lovely raped during a raid. You know the rules. Carry those rape babies to term. Then the poor schmuck winds up a slave, pushed around by his unknowing half-brother Kirk Douglas for no good reason, in the same way that all these cops keep pulling folks over for no good reason and wind up killing them, just because they think they can get away with it as if Trump are still sowing chaos in the White House and encouraging them to do this. This shithead shows up while out falconing, he can't hack it himself, sees Tony with his own bird, demands that he must have stolen it, 
and shoots down any alibis or protestations of innocence he offers. In return, Tony sticks his trained bird on the guy and takes out his eye. From here on out, he's really on the shit list. An envoy from England helping the Vikings against his own shitty king and the old witch vizier they rely on for advice joined forces to protect Tony, saving his life when he is sentenced to drowning in the barren by crabs, giving him a de facto compass medallion he was given at birth, which becomes a minor plot point, no way to navigate the ships in fog, and helping him to run off to England with his new girlfriend, the Princess of England, Tony's talentless then-wife, Janet Lee again. Things never go right for the guy, though, because now the current king of the Vikings gets captured by the even nastier king of England, and sentenced to being bound and devoured in a pit of rabid wolves. Tony cuts the guy free and gives him a sword to face his death like a man, and gets his own hand cut off for his trouble. Then he winds up back with the damn Vikings, who finally rally and join forces when they hear this, to take down the King of England. But this still has to die a shithead, so once again, he tries to force his way on Lee and do a final fight with Tony. The good guy wins, roll credits. Whew, what a stupid-ass film this was! I mean, it was more watchable than a lot of similar fare of this era, but that's not saying much. It's too prim for its story and setting. It's too long-winded and boring, and overly lavish, without really impressing anyone. So I guess if this sort of thing is your idea of fun, sure, but... Yeesh. And then Mortal Wars of Ice Cube, yo, fuck Hollywood. <laughs> well, I, I also thought I also thought it was a, a tad dark too. Uh, you it know, was very dark. Kirk, Kirk Douglas, Kirk Douglas. We never did a Kirk Douglas show, do we? Or, no. Or was I stunned that I don't remember? <laughs> <laughs> now, Kirk Douglas. Uh, we should, we should. Uh, Kirk Douglas is one of those guys who took the bull by the horns early on, carving out the next phases of his own career by saying, I'm going to produce, I'm going to cast, and I'm going to have somebody come and direct the movies I want to make because I'm tired of making X kind of movies. Um, much like I just said, you know, I, it looked like Lancaster was doing this. Kirk Douglas is another guy. But this is so weird, this movie. It's just, it wasn't a happy-go-lucky film, you know? And it, it, I'm sure audiences walked out of this going, huh? And, and you know you're in trouble when when you had to get somebody to narrate this picture. It's overlong too, I think, 130 minutes or something for the time period. And when you know narrations by Orson Welles, meaning nobody can follow this fucking film. So have you have somebody come <laughs> to narrate this thing so audience audiences can get up to speed. I didn't like it. I always had a problem with it. But then Tony started going on this road rage thing against. The Wall of Conformity, because the Defiant Ones came next, right? Uh, not quite next. Not next quite. was actually Kings Go Forth. Sorry. My father was a great man. He was also black. <laughs> First of three Tony Curtis and Natalie Wood pairings. This was actually more of a Sinatra film. Sinatra was known for showing up in several mediocre war films around this time. And this one's no exception with the major caveat that this one, despite its setting and occasional bits of largely off-screen action, is more of a soapy women's melodrama in war film clothing. Sinatra's a crusty, aging army lifer in the middle of World War II, fighting their way through France. He makes palsy-wowsy with green but quite capable recruit Tony Curtis, who displays a reckless bravery several times throughout the course of the film, sometimes with Sinatra's blessing, others to be dressed down for it. Sinatra's kind of a dick. Anyway, before you know it, they're spilling their guts to each other, and they're going out drinking together, playing cards, you name it. Sinatra wanders off on leave at some point and meets a rather prim Natalie Wood, a local yokel who's supposedly of American origin, just to shut the Freedom Fries crowd, I guess. He spends some time schmoozing the girl until things start to get serious. When she drops the bomb that she hears how crass military guys are, so she wanted to make sure that he knew that she's <gasps> a mulatto. Yeah, Natalie Wood, half black. Gotta love Hollywood. Anyway, in response to this, 
Frank hangs his head in disgust and refuses to even look at a photo of the guy as her mother tries to show him while talking about what a superheroic, upstanding guy he was, working his way up from nothing to success, all the usual measures of, look, he's practically white. They were supposed to satisfy these sort of assholes back in the day. But nope, he just walks off and leaves mother and daughter in depression and tears. What a man, Frank, what a man. Of course, an old army buddy talks some sense into him, mostly based around how it sucks to be lonely, and convinces them to table his clan-certified reservations about miscegenation. And she goes for it, if you can believe the lack of self-respect there. But then she sees Tony, and Tony's younger, he's more handsome, he's hip. She encounters him blurring away some hot jazz trumpet solo in a local nightclub, and he's very much on the make, which Darrell Frank just allows. He slow dances with the girl, he makes out with her, he throws pickup lines at her, Frank just smiles sadly. Mm, sure, good plan there. Before you know it, they're supposed to get married, and they're together at her house with her mom. When Frank threatens to kill Tony, unless he confesses that he never intended to marry her, he was just bawling her because she was half black to try it out as a new kick. You scum! I don't like that word coming from you, Mrs. Blair. Seven occasions I've been engaged to marry, and seven occasions I've been not engaged to marry, if you'll follow me. And a lot of these girls I wouldn't take to a country club, but with the exception of your daughter, all of them were white. In the end, Frank loses an arm, Tony loses his life, and Frank gets together with Wood. Yay, how progressive of him? I'm not sure who the hell this was being marketed to. Was it intended as a proto-guess who's coming to dinner? I like boysenberry, a ring-a-ding-ding. Or is it just another Chloe Love is calling you? A similarly ridiculous racist voodoo melodrama from the days of the talkie. It's sad that not much changed between 1931 and 1958, and they we're still fighting the same stupidity to this very day. I mean, last time I ever talked to my drummer, his choice words of comfort in an early marital spat I've had with my wife were, gotta stick to your own kind, man. So this kind of shit hits below the belt. Sorry if I get really pissed off at it. But even if that's not the case for you, something as asinine as this shouldn't be sold is still hard-hitting and relevant to this very day, like it was on the box. It's more like, why the hell did Frank and Tony sign up for something so utterly asinine in premise? Was this really an issue? And did a stupid film like this ever really stand a chance at playing a part in putting an end to colored fountains and back-of-the-bus segregation? I don't think so. Well, my, my take, this is this, uh, to my belief, that this probably started out as a Frank Vanity production to actually be worked out to be a much better film. I believe that because Frank is on the comeback trail around this film, and the time of this film and Tony's starting to be considered for more serious work around the time of this film and Natalie Wood pardon me is an up up and comer around the time of this film there's a lot of stuff going on that probably the they all signed on for a picture to be different and maybe hard hitting and maybe to be uh timely because you gotta remember Frank was very much you know in, into you know he was, he, as much as it seemed not the case, he was very much, you know, he had Sammy. Yeah, he's Jr. Sammy. Mind, you know, he, yeah, you know, if, and he, he was really not, he was really against what was going on with the racism and stuff like that. So maybe he was, saw this as a picture, kind of ease into, you know, he kind of liked the ideas of it. What I'm trying to get at is I think Hollywood uh, also take note that this is not an easy to find film nowadays. I think the original producers or company probably shifted it over to somebody. You know, you have two big name actors in this, three, four, and they shifted this over to somebody else, to somebody else, to somebody else, until you got to the point where you can't find a damn thing anymore. <laughs> and not anybody really wanted to, but that probably whatever the intentions were of, let's say, Frank and Tony, it comes off being off. involved in it yeah it just it, it got changed i think this is a film you know that hollywood kind of like 
fucked with. Mm-hmm. So uh, next up is the one you were thinking of, the Defiant Ones. Yes. You heard what the man said. <clears throat> now shut up. So begins this tale told many a time since of a jailbreak where two very different people are chained together, in this case literally, and must learn to cooperate to remain free. Tony pulls a full-on Carol O'Connor as a virulent racist, playing very much against type. In the real world, he actually demanded that the studio put Sidney Poitier's name above his in credits and on posters, which was at first for Hollywood. He and Poitier are chained together, we're told, because the warden had a sense of humor, knowing just how alt-right Tony's character was, and the local gendarme aren't overly concerned, figuring they'll kill each other off before they even get to them. It's that kind of a movie. Of course, having to fight the world together and spend all their downtime talking, they start to see past all that superficial bullshit and respect each other as fellow human beings, starting with a fireside chat where Tony bitches about working peon jobs as a valet, having to kiss rich folks' asses despite the disdain for a buck, as if Portia had no idea what having a place of serving to assholes was about, simultaneously perpetuating class divisions by ending his sentences with, boy, which he gets called out for. You know, you'd think we'd be long past this point in our national conversation where apparently this film should be mandatory viewing, especially in red states nowadays. Along the way, they run into a few situations where locals like former jailbird Lon Chaney Jr. either help or harm their attempts at escape, with one single mother falling for Tony and sending Portia off in the swamp to get caught. When Tony finds out, he rips her a new one and heads out after his now pal, only to get shot by her kid. Hello, little gun control, baby. At the end, Portia manages to hobo a ride in a passing train, but refuses to leave Tony behind, so they both wait to get caught and or killed together as credits roll, wiser and more enlightened, but screwed regardless. Yay? It's well-filmed and lit. It's almost noir-esque, given how much of the film was shot in the open during daylight. And the acting between the two leads is quite good. This may, in fact, be one of Tony's best performances, though he's still outshone by Sidney Poitier. But however basic and seemingly obvious the message, it's sadly apparent that in 2021, an entire nation, perhaps a world, needs to go back and brush up on the basics. Well, here you go. Watch this movie, enjoy the performances, and learn something useful. Well, I, I, I can add a little to what you just said. Uh, Tony Curtis is phenomenal, phenomenal in this. Sidney Poitier is phenomenal in this. It's by, <laughs> it's directed by, talk about somebody who always mystified people. Stanley Kramer, uh, a bizarre filmmaker who would make this movie, followed up by the nuclear apocalyptic on the beach, Juglet, Judgment at Nuremberg, um, guess who's coming to dinner? I mean, um, uh, also a party, but you know, just strange movies, man. This guy made strange movies. Uh, Bless the Beasts and Children, um, and it's a mad, 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 mad world. But he's, he's also a stage guy. It's, it's a very strange filmmaker, and but this is a very, very good film. I, I, I yeah, you, you really nailed it on the head with what you had to say. So again, almost right on the back of this, he does Some Like It Hot. <sighs> Talk about overrated. Some sources claim this to simultaneously be the greatest comedy of all time and the greatest film of all time. It got six Oscar nominations. People list this as one of the best films for kids under 14. Say, what? Did he even watch this <laughs> damn thing? <laughs> about the only thing you can actually say for it is that it's, sadly enough, one of Marilyn Monroe's better films, and it's probably the most mainstream gay interest film you'll find prior to Midnight Cowboy. Not only is it a drag fest, but Billy Wilder, who's gay himself, loads the innuendo on as thick as possible throughout. Essentially, Curtis and Jack Lemmon are jazz sidemen who witness mobsters taking out a pair of informants, making themselves targets in the process. Since they don't have any money and need to make themselves scarce, they decide to go drag and join an Orgo combo. 
While Lemon is pretty obvious, the best coming off akin to an aged Carol Channing or Martha Ray, Tony kind of looks like Joanne Worley. He's clearly comfortable decked out as a woman, that's for sure. This is where they meet, and Tony falls for a blowsy, but still very much in her prime Monroe, prompting him to adopt a second disguise as a Cary Grant-like rich suitor. Lemon finds himself wooed by an old rich guy who can't get it up anymore, and decides to marry him, reveal he's a guy, and divorce him for a big cash settlement. When Tony talks him out of this, at the end, he and Monroe square the deck and fall for each other. Lemon still gets proposed to by the old rich guy, even after he reveals he's a guy in drag. So, nobody's perfect. End of film. Well, you can't say it isn't playing hard and fast with the gender bending and implications of homosexuality, but is it funny? No. Is it one of our great films? <laughs> Even in my early teens, when I was fascinated by the schizophrenic Norma Jean Mortensen and her affected public persona, I never liked this film, finding both pointless and a real head-scratcher. I know in England there's a grand tradition of cross-dressing pantomime where every year big-name stars get in the drag and do silly little plays and skits for the holidays, possibly for charity, and it's kind of expected. But here in the States, I can't speak for the current generation who's influenced more things like uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, but it's hardly been a common thing. Hence the public fascination and amusement about Ed Wood or the marginal outsider status of pioneers like Divine or Sylvester or even RuPaul himself, and he came around the 90s. So no question this was groundbreaking stuff, particularly all the implications of Lemon and his relationship with the old millionaire. But is it any fucking good? No, in fact, it kind of sucks. Oh, ye who have little faith. Uh, no, actually, I think it's... Uh... A fun movie. I, I, I won't be as harsh on it as you were. <laughs> uh, it, it's that these two guys were so good at wearing heels. Damn. <laughs> it must be hard. I, I have never worn. Yeah, yeah. I have never worn heels. I don't know about you, but you know, it's, it's got to be hard. got to be rough in the ankles, too. Damn. I used to wear cowboy boots all the time, but no, not heels. Yeah, 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 yeah. Remember the, the days of the three-inch platform shoes? Yes, well, that was before my time, but I definitely remember them. Oh, they were my time. Anyway, they, they hurt, too. So, <laughs> <laughs> Cuban heel boots and all that stuff. Platform shoes. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I, I, I think it's a thoroughly enjoyable film. It's weird. Um, would it have benefited by being shot in color? I don't know. I don't know about that. It, it's certainly a time where they could have shot it in color, but... Uh, I guess they wanted to stay in the milieu of, uh, you know, being a cheap throwback. <laughs> yeah, cheap comedy. Well, no, a throwback to an earlier time. I think Lemon and, and Tony Curtis actually made a good team. I'm surprised they didn't do it too much often. Um, I don't dislike it as much as you do. I find it enjoyable. Um, groundbreaking, though. Uh, a lot of people don't realize how groundbreaking it was. 1959, again, almost on the back of that, Operation Petticoat. It's the first of a handful of films Blake Edwards of Pink Panther and Victor Victoria fame would do with Curtis. It was popular enough to spin off into a television series at the time, so I guess it has that much going for it. Cary Grant is the captain of a sub that gets sunk by the Japanese in World War II. The Nicholas Hammond Spider-Man's Jonah Jameson, Robert Simon, is his boss who reassigns his crew to other boats while it's undergoing repairs. In return, he gets a bunch of oddballs as replacements. Tony Curtis isn't exactly qualified for his new job, plus he's a slick schemer who works with another new guy who steals Navy ship for his own restaurant. They hire a witch doctor to bless the beleaguered, patched-up submarine, which works, and lets them set sail. Some goofy, if unfunny, hijinks ensue, including shooting down landed trucks instead of enemy subs, problems with a quartet of stranded Navy nurses they rescue, which includes super hottie Mrs. Cunningham from Happy Days, Marion Ross, it's hot ticket, and having to fend off an attacking American boat who thinks they're really Japanese spies by shooting out the nurse's lingerie instead of a torpedo, which makes the Americans cease fire because, quote, the Japanese have nothing like this, i.e. big tits. Um, ha-ha? 
not a lot for Tony to do here besides looking act sleazy. And also in the cast is Bewitched Dick Sargent and Kolchak himself, Gavin McLeod. Films like this are why I hate the Hays Code and more or less stopped watching films from when it was enacted until the very end of the 60s. What a lot of safe, unfunny, and ridiculously dated shit. What's next, Jerry Lewis films? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, it's a strange movie. Well, it's, it's interesting, too, that they, they, they paired Cary Grant and Tony Curtis together. It's like... I guess Tony started to get some uh, build up a little bit of uh, positive vibes in the star system in Hollywood, you know, late 50s, early 60s. You know, but even if we didn't like the movies, you and I so much. Oh, they made a they lot were, of money. They're they made a lot of money. So yeah. they're probably thinking, and here's a guy who's who's about to pretty much do his last couple of pictures, Cary Grant. Mm. So it was like an interesting combination I actually don't think they work too badly together, surprisingly. But no, it's it's a fluff a fluff another movie. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of which, who was that lady in nineteen sixty? Another pairing of Tony with real life wife of the time, Janet Lee. And while there is a cute and surprisingly spicy bedroom scene for its rather prudish era, the real life cracks may be starting the show. Lee looks significantly more mature this time around than she did in Houdini, with rougher makeup and lines in her face, playing a crazily obsessive, if ostensibly passionate, control freak. Elise Curtis calling her every hour on the hour and taking the task for supposedly forgetting to kiss her goodbye, though he protests this wasn't even the case. Probably realizing that the crazy ones may be great in the sack, but you don't want to shack up with them, the film's premise derives from a quick scene that runs through the opening credits. A college lab assistant, he's making out with a sexy exchange student who we never see above the waistline, when his insane monomaniac of a wife walks in and catches him in flagrante delicto. Being one of these mostly sexist 50s movie studio comedies, he's supposed to be innocent of motive here, but whatever, she's still out of her gourd. After threatening divorce and booking a flight out to Reno for that purpose, Tony enlists the help of his hack television writer, Paldine Martin, who concocts some wild story about Curtis being an FBI agent, and she buys it. Unfortunately for Curtis, it gets the attention of the FBI, and worse, gives Martin some big ideas about scoring a double date with two blowsy blondes, of course sticking the scary old one, Barbara Nichols, with Curtis, and taking the more acceptable one, Joy Lansing, for himself in the process. Then Lee befriends FBI agent James Whitmore of them, and commie agents Larry Storch and Kolchak's boss Simon Oakland get involved. Too early to trade in on the whole James Bond Eurospot trend, this comes off even more half-assed and light and fluffy than the Tony Perkins weird-ass Bardot film, A Ravishing Idiot, or Tony Randall's Our Man in Marrakesh. On paper, it certainly looks like a spy film, but it plays out more as a broad gentleman's club entertainment, Rob. Picture a bunch of old, fat, drunken elks or whatever. Oh, ho, ho, I should try that excuse to get some behind wifey's back. <laughs> it's not bad for what it is in the era in which it was made, but what's that saying? In fact, the best thing you can say about it is that it's very much an American attempt to make a Bardot film. The originals are so much better. Why not just go watch Bebe? There's a lot more to be entertained by. <laughs> Actually, my take on this, I thought D. Martin was really good in this. Um, you know, post, post, uh, post Jerry, you know, Dean started making some unusual choices. And though this is a comedy drama, you know, with emphasis more on the camp, I thought Dean was very, very good in this. And um, I thought, you know, because for years people, I know it's a Tony Curtis show, but for years people thought that Dean wasn't any good. And this is like the period where we start seeing him do pretty decent work. It's it's all for naught because the picture surrounding them is not that great. But yeah, it's it's, it's almost, yeah, it's a rewrite of a, of a French a French movie. That's what it seems like. It's what it feels like. Again, right on top of this is Spartacus. Another shitty Bible movie. These things are seen as safe, dependable box office gold in their day. 
which must have been a really fucking boring one, given how perfectly execrable every one of these pieces of shit is. About the only one I was ever able to sit through was the Bible, mostly because it felt sleazier and kinkier than the others, more like a hippie head trip with all those weird bald-headed sodomites with shit painted all over them, like third eyes and their forehead and hands, writhing and getting all orgiastic in the face of impending doom. The others, more staid than your Maiden Nance Knitting Club, where they eviscerate all surrounding for their, quote, vices, real or imagined, which is about the most sex they're ever likely to get. So this one is technically somewhere in snoozeworthy no-man's land between the Bible epic and the Italian Hercules Peplum, as it's not really about Jesus or the Hebrews, but a Roman slave revolt. Basically, Kirk Douglas is the titular slave who's so belligerent and anti-authoritarian, he's rerouted into the gladiatorial arena before he gathers together a people's revolution against the decadent powers that be. There's a side story involving Tony Curtis's Antoninus, a Sicilian, quote, gift to a rich Roman senator who escapes to join the revolution when he figures out that the terms of his servitude involve playing bitch to the senator's butch or vice versa. In fact, it's probably the only reason this film is still discussed outside of the revolutionary overtones. It's utter gayness. Talk about homoerotic. Check out that bathhouse scene with all those undressed hairy guys gazing at each other meaningfully, sidling up and touching each other's hands and arms in a more than casual way. Vapors comes off more hetero in this movie. Some weird casting. John Ireland, Woody Strode, Charles Lawton, Peter Ustinov. But unless you're desperate for a far more lavender Bible epic come pepple than usual, don't bother. And Tony's barely in it anyway. This is one of the greatest films ever made. <laughs> really? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Holy I shit. think this is one of the greatest films ever made. Fuck you. Uh, <laughs> well, we you stand all, on vapors now. <laughs> no, no, we those well-oiled muscles, you know. Um, no, no, I, I, I love this movie. Fucking kidding me? I, 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 I mean, and it's been said that that Kirk Douglas had directed some of this when, when Stanley Kubrick, I mean, Stanley Kubrick had made like one or two small films and suddenly he's handled this big giant picture. It's way, way above the, the bizarre Dalton Trombo screenplay is wow. They it's, it's weird because how weird is it? It's weird that they inject 19th early late fifties, early sixties, problematic things in, in, in American politics into this via the dialogue into into this movie which is supposed to be this historical drama and and yeah that the stuff that's going on there where Olivier and Tony Curtis and also with Tony Curtis and Kirk and the, and is that great the poem of Antonitis you know when Tony Tony recites that poem that's a really good moment. I, 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 Jesus Christ. You're, you're harsh, man. The Library of Congress, National Film Registry, a culturally historical and aesthetically significant film in 2017, they said. Come on, Let's man. put it this way. We've got in the basement, uh, in a laundry room down there, and somebody put up a poster that is Oscar winners from the day it was invented back in like 1929 or whatever the hell. All the mm. way through, I don't know, I guess the mid-80s when the poster stops. And trying to find more than four films on that entire poster that I even accept, much less like, is a chore. I'm like, oh my god. That's why I always say that. It's like, they say it's an Oscar winner, it means avoid it like a plague. <laughs> like, wow, what a bunch of shit. I, 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 no, I, I have to really disagree with you. I, I thought Kirk Douglas was fucking amazing in this, and, and Tony Curtis was very good. He's in a good portion. Yeah, Charles Lawton is raucous. Peter Ustinov. This is some weird casting. Yeah. Weird casting. 
I mean, Harold J. Harold J. Stone, you know, Harold J. Stone, you know, another guy from New York. You know, he's, he's <laughs> Woody Strode, you know, I, I, but the, I, I think you can have good actors doing a good performance in a shitty movie. And that's the way I see these things. Like, God, I just can't watch this crap. I, I really have thought of Gene Simmons as hot. <laughs> this movie was like, wow. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, he doesn't mean Gene Simmons, the rock guy. He means Gene Simmons, the woman, <laughs> the actress. <laughs> Thank you for that. You know, you never know. So I'm going to listen to like, Gene Simmons, really? The best tongue? That big tongue, man. No. He's like a farmer lunatic. Uh, so next is uh, Taurus Bulba. Typical big blowhard Hollywood production when everything had to be some Cecil B. DeMille historical or Bible movie with a cast of thousands of extras and more money flushed down the toilet for no good reason. Then you and me could live on for a decade. For one of these overblown pieces of crap, it's not unwatchable, and that's mostly down to Yul Brenner thoroughly enjoying himself as the chest-thumping Cossack of the title, and Tony Curtis playing a character clearly much younger than his age or looks. He seems about 35 or 40, to be honest, playing a hot-headed teenager. The background is the typical boring shit, Ukrainian Cossacks helping the Polish beat the Turks, only to be betrayed and enslaved for their assistance. No wonder Poland has so many jokes thrown against it. What a bunch of assholes. So, Ewell raises his son Tony and his visual and plot-wise wallpaper pal Perry Lopez, who? And sends him off to college in Poland, only to have Tony fall for the cute princess Christine Kaufman. The locals treat the Cossacks like dirt and eventually try to burn her at the stake for the heinous crime of miscegenation, which leads to Tony turning against his papa for love and Ewell putting his son out of his misery. End of film. Uh, yay? Supposedly based on some book by Gagal, which apparently itself went through several diametrically opposed iterations, sometimes pro-Cossack, sometimes pro-Russia, and therefore pro-Polish, whatever. It's asinine crap with a lot of pointless thousand extra charges and clashes, only to save with some degree by seeing Brenner having the time of his life and Tony's usual likable self. This is one I don't like. And and it's just, a, you know, like the Vikings, I find it's a film that just doesn't work, really. Um it's very similar. It's similar and not to the Vikings, where you have these big Hollywood stars in these very big productions, and and it's all signifying nothing. You know what yeah. do they call it? All sound and noise signifying nothing. I mean, that's what it is. Tony, <laughs> yeah, Tony is top build over you, Bernard, which is interesting. And 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 in researching this film. I found it was a Robert Aldrich. Yes, that Robert Aldrich. It was his like love child. He really wanted to make this movie, but he couldn't get financing. And then at the last minute, he finally sold it, and then it got immediately made by somebody who, I guess, decided to Hollywoodize it. Waldo Salt, another really good writer, is credited with the screenplay, but I bet it was more – he actually wrote Midnight Cowboy, Coming Home. He's one of those great, terrific screenwriters. But I bet his work got rewritten by some Hollywood hacks. It's it might be a movie the Russian family and the Polish family can get around at Christmas time and watch. Like, <laughs> oh, this is our heritage. But it really, you know, how anybody even talks about Terrace Bulbar anymore? I mean, maybe it's like you know we had uh, members of the family that had married in that were Jewish, so it's like you have the half a times and you have that and. They would go back and forth like, hey, Matsu Christi. No, no, it was you people that put him up there crucified. <laughs> also, it was one of the early Hollywood disasters. I wanted to point that out. It was uh, Its budget was $6 million. And it only made, like, box office, like three. So that was tough. <laughs> that was tough. 
it's it was an expensive film. It's like you said, a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. Or right. Storm and Drang. A lot of these films are like that. Like, why? Why did he do all this? But it's obviously big budgeted. You got a lot of big names in there. Uh, so anyway, next up is another weird one: the list of Adrian Messenger. Terrible gimmick-based pseudo espionage film slash mystery. It's a definite starfucker affair with not only Tony, but Kirk Douglas, Burt Lancaster, Robert Mitchum, Frank Sinatra, George C. Scott. Not that you'll ever know most of them are even there. Some nonsense about a writer who discovers a bunch of unrelated deaths are linked after all, gets off himself, and the MI6 and French Resistance veterans who try to piece things together. Unfortunately, it's no spy thriller, and they never really leave this one room or the grounds of the estate it's part of, but it's not a locked room mystery either. It's just George C. Scott talking endlessly to the Frenchman as prudish-looking old Faith Domerog look-alike Dana Winters scowls, frets, and makes faces with her mouth hanging open. Much later, Kirk Douglas comes around and scowls between smirks. That's it for the entire running time, except for several boring countrymen of steeplechase and fox hunt scenes that pad out the film even more than it already is. The only reason everyone would ever want to watch this piece of crap is found right after the end credits title card comes up. In place of an actual credits crawl, several members of the poorly latex prothesis cast of apparent nobodies peel off their faces to reveal all the big-name stars you were cheated out seeing the entire time. The best part about this, someone else must have been just as annoyed by this asinine conceit, because as soon as Tony Curtis does this reveal, which is actually the first one shown, the disc I was watching froze and jumped up ahead to Robert Mission already sans mask. Then it jumped to the DVD authoring company logo. So the only good part of this movie, and I didn't even get to see it. But seriously, unless you're really fascinated by latex prostheses and want to see a big star-studded spectacular where you never actually see or hear the stars, skip this hard snooze fest. It's awful. Very unusual film to be made, 1963. Very, yeah, very unusual. Um, I guess John Huston, everybody knew who John Huston was at that time, you know, was calling in the, uh, calling in the um, favors. Favors, thank you. And so everybody's really into espionage films, uh, sorry, novels around this time period. So I'm sure when somebody bought this to someone, they said, hey, this is great. It's a spy thing. And we'll get all these, we'll call in these favors and guys will do some really elaborate make Some of the makeup is quite good. But it's like, what, what are we watching here? What is this? You know, and, and it's a mess. It's one film that doesn't work. <laughs> I thought you were walking through the ice. Same year, Captain Newman, MD. Hands down the worst and stiffest actor of his generation, Gregory. Puck gets another inexplicable leading role in this terrible comedy drama about the shrink who, during his stint supporting the Air Force, came up with the post-traumatic stress diagnosis. Yeah, sounds like a real knee slapper, huh? Peck, who always seems like somebody left a mop standing center screen, <laughs> shoved it straight up his ass, then started recording, stiffly spits phraseology in as boring and disaffected a manner as possible. Even as Captain Ahab, he was always rooted to the spot and frowning annoyedly, and that's a role that requires ferality and deep-seated manic rage. Tony's an orderly at Peck's base hospital, and there's a cast of oddballs you wouldn't expect to see together, like Dick Sargent, Larry Storch, Robert Duvall, Bobby Darren, Eddie Albert. What the fuck? As for comedy? Yeesh. If MASH, which we talk about in our Donald Sutherland and Elliot Gould shows, was unfunny melodrama sold as comedy, what the hell is this piece of shit? And why are so many named stars, several veterans of television comedies, doing in it? Anything you want to say about that one? No. <laughs> which says it all right there. So, 1964, Goodbye, Charlie. The inspiration for a far more entertaining film, namely Switch with Ellen Barkin, this Vincente Minnelli comedy is about a cheating writer who gets shot by cuckold hubby Walter Matthau, only to come back in the body of a woman, song and dance girl Debbie Reynolds, here looking more fetching than usual as a tousle-haired blonde. 
Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. Switch, the whole joke of this is something that probably wouldn't seem amusing or even unusual nowadays because it's that this very much a woman is talking and behaving very much like a gruff, pushy, and abrasive man. Not like we aren't seeing some rather testosterone-driven women these days and some rather soy boy emo toy guys to boot. Would a post-millennial Tony Curtis even recognize his old pal Charlie and this odd woman who wanders into his life? Probably not. Anyway, the expected shenanigans ensue as Charlie as Debbie has to deal with horny guys, like Walter Matthau again, before being once again shot, this time by Matthau's wife. It was a weird happy ending of sorts, where Reynolds reappears in Curtis's life, but as herself this time, only to have her dog turn out to be Charlie's next reincarnation. Roll credits. Reynolds does a good job for the day, coming off as gruff and misogynistically manly as you'd expect, but it's not Barkin who is A, more attractive to me at least, and B, ramp that shit up to a more recent generation's standards. It's the same story, just a matter of preference, but I don't think the more considered, almost effete mannerisms of Hayes Code-driven Hollywood are the right milieu for this sort of thing. Comedy's hard enough without putting weird strictures on what you can and can't say or show, and while an admirable effort, I'd certainly redirect the curious to switch. Tony's not the central character I concede here, so you won't be missing much in that respect. Well, no, you made several good points. Uh, that they bothered to make this movie when they were under a lot of restrictions at the time. Um, what they could and could not do. Um, so it's almost like, why bother, right? Yeah. I don't remember switch... Uh, I keep thinking, what was that movie with Mel Gibson to read the minds of women or what women want or what, whatever it was, what men want or whatever, what, whoever, what, what, what. <laughs> Basically, Switch was the same movie as this, just, you know, without all the strictures on it. And it was done in like 1993 or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It, it's just, it's okay. It's, it's, it, it was different for its time period. Again, another movie you don't see too much. Yeah. So uh, 1964 is a step up in the way. Sex and the Single Girl. This is the sort of crap I grew up with. Mainstream Hollywood perpetrated this sort of light and fluffy, innuendo-laden, but extremely prim nonsense throughout the 50s and 60s, even into the very early 70s before they started to catch up with the sexual revolution, and then only for a decade or so before snapping back into prudish conservatism with a vengeance. Natalie Wood looks stunning here in a role that likely inspired Marlo Thomas and that girl, and it's not much better than that silly show was, despite hooking in the likes of Edward Everett Horton, Stubby K, Larry Storch, Barbara Boucher, Mel Ferrer, and a very out-of-her-place Lauren Bacall, somehow as the mean and jealous wife of nervous little old man Henry Fonda, if you can believe that. The plot is ext- <laughs> extremely convoluted, to the point where you could almost have classified it as a screwball comedy if done 30 years earlier, except they forgot to bring clever scripts, saucy bomb bots, or more than one attractive leading couple to pay attention to. Most importantly, they forgot to bring the laughs. Somehow inspired by Cosmo founder Heaven Gurley Brown's autobiography come Young Woman's Advice column of a book, published two years prior, this throws standard Hollywood tropes of the day up in the air and plays them wherever they lie. Screw the source material. Bottom line, Tony works for a sleazy magazine determined to disprove Wood's sexual experience and therefore negate her book. Using his neighbor's father's marital woes as a cover, he enlists Wood for her sex advice, and she suddenly shifts from journalist and self-help type to faux psychoanalyst talking about transference while almost immediately falling for Curse, who reciprocates, despite his claiming to be married and trying to repair his reputation as a Lothario. Many bait-and-switches and telephone-style miscommunications ensue, but that's all this one's about, effectively defanging Girlie Brown's magnum opus and showing her to be a, quote, traditional good girl, after all, hooking Curtis and Wood up and getting Bacall back to old man Fonda. It's really, really bad in that respect, like a long episode of Love American Style Sands Laugh Track, but, oh my god, Natalie Wood is gorgeous here particularly when showing off her biggest assets. So there's something to be said for it, despite how crappy it is as a whole. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I like Tony in this. I thought he was... He was he's kind fine. Of, yeah, he's fine. He's returning a bit to what made him famous originally. 
Um, but he's having a little fun with it. I think he knows what he's in for here. But I guess he's also having a ball with the with the supporting cast. Come on, Lauren Bacall, Henry Fonda, Mel Farrar. But yeah, Natalie Natalie Wood looks terrific in this, which makes sense because they reteam for a film I truly love, which I don't think you like. <laughs> which is The Great Race. Blake Edwards, already famed for his Peter Sellers Pink Panther films and soon be known for Bo Derek's One Claim to Fame 10, Julie Andrews' late career oddities SOB and Victor Victoria, and yet another gender bender, Ellen Barkin Switch, here runs the ground and breaks an axle with this big budgeted bomb that steals from better films like The Great Train Robbery and It's a Mad Mad World. Somehow this inspired the much beloved Wacky Races cartoon. Remember that spinoff of the Perils of Penelope Pit stuff? Of course. With Muttley and Dick Dastardly? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. But even if your four or five-year-old self managed to blurt a half-hearted laugh out at that over your bold Captain Crunch or Quisp, you're sure to remain stony-visaged here. Jack Lemmon is the Dick Dastardly of the piece, right down to his huge hat, F on his chest, and overdone twirly mustachio. Apparently Peter Falk's in this as his sidekick, but truth be told, I wound up watching most of it on Fast Forward. It was such a predictable piece of crap and over long, nearly three hours worth. Natalie Wood's back, but you won't easily recognize her in all the period clothing and Penelope Pitstop gear, as she pulls an early feminist thing and tries to get in on a big race between Evil Knievel meets Houdini-style stuntman Tony Curtis, and his aforementioned rival Jack Lemmon. Oh, and so is Keenan Hal Satan Wynn, Larry Storch, Ross Martin, and Uncle Jesse his own self, Denver Pyle, so... There's a lot of time killed doing nothing, and a stupid side plot involving Lemon being a lookalike to a postage stamp kingdom's potentate, and is temporarily taking the guy's place during a revolt. I don't know. I don't care. Films like this are why I hate mainstream Hollywood. Don't you think we have something better to do with our time? <laughs> I love this movie. I know. You said it early on. I'm like, wow, really? That one? <laughs> I do. I loved it when I was a kid. And, and, That's probably why. And I, I saw it later on, and then it was really hard. It turns out. What was I? One of us was mentioning direct to uh, DVD or direct to Blu-ray releases by studios earlier. Yeah. And this is apparently the only way you can get it. And it, the print wasn't, ter- you know, it wasn't like blow your socks off, but still it was nice to have on Blu-ray. And yeah, it's long. It's always been long, like three hours or just about um, 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, two hours and 40 minutes. It's probably longer in some variants. Um. I always like this. You know, Tony's Tony Curtis is having a lot of fun. Is the great Leslie? Oops, no, Professor Fate. Sorry, <laughs> no, the great Leslie. Sorry, sorry. Tony's having a lot of fun as the great Leslie during the time of uh, women, women's you know the birth of women's emancipation, suffragettes and all that. Vivian Vance from uh, Vivian Vance, help me out from uh, I Love Lucy, right? Yeah, she's 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 in this actually she don't look too bad. Um <laughs> she's Arthur O'Connell's wife. I know, go figure. And he runs the newspaper that Nellie Wood, as Maggie Dubois, works for. She's she's a a, a, a beginning suffragette who's a reporter, and he's like, No, you won't work for me. So the great Leslie was like, No, I don't Oh, a mix of this guy and that guy and that guy and that guy and like superstar and the best race car driver in the world as well as an adventure, you know, that kind of thing. Played by Tony. Um, is going to drive a car around the world with uh, who the hell's? Oh, with Keenan Wynn as Hezekiah. Well, Hezekiah. I'm sorry, folks. Hezekiah. Yes, it came. It just came to me after I mispronounced it. How often? Tony Curtis is Hezekiah. <laughs> like, God, that must have been a mouthful. Oh, no pun intended. <laughs> I, I, I hope not. 
Anyway, you have some unusual people in small roles. There are a lot of people in this film. You will find yourself saying, who is that? Or I've seen them somewhere. And they're not even listed in the credits. So maybe they did it as a favor. <laughs> so Jack Lemon, who was billed first, go figure, he's Professor Fate. And so Jack Lemon puts on the, the top hat, the cape, the trilly mustache as your, your vaudevillian villain, vaudevillian villain, <laughs> and like the Dazzly and Muttley cartoons. You know, there he is. And Peter Fork is Max, who's Professor Fate's right-hand man, follows him everywhere. And, but Peter Fork is, is hamming it up in this very harsh Brooklynese thing. Yeah, yeah, Professor Fate, I'm right with you. I'm right with you, Professor. Yeah, Professor. And Jack Levin is doing this weird giggle. He, it's very strange. Meanwhile, Tony's strutting around like, I don't know what. And like, Natalie Wood is playing coy until like, mm-hmm. So I always liked this film. That being said, when I finally got a hold of, oh, I can get the Blu-ray, I fell asleep on it. <laughs> because it's so long. But this is a it's it's a fun, charming movie. Um this is the kind of thing that led to the cannonball run. Sure. So um after this, nineteen sixty five, he shows up in the Flintstones as uh, Stony Curtis. An episode that's actually called her Tony Stony Curtis. We almost got a big thing for him, of course, as playing a very aged version of the teenage fan club that he actually had in real life. Nineteen sixty five again. Boeing Boeing. The movie's so good, Paramount ended a 20-year relationship with Jerry Lewis over it. Seriously, they've made nearly 40 movies from 1949 to 1965 with the guy and said, you know what? Fuck this unfunny asshole. And he never made another film you've ever heard of except for the infamous Don't Raise the Bridge, Lower the River. So, that says a lot. Tony's a gigolo, who, with the help of old housefrau Thelma Ritter, manages to juggle three stewardess girlfriends at the same time, as their separate airlines keep different schedules. For no reason other than to give the guy a paycheck, old pal Jerry Lewis shows up looking for a place to crash, and get this, Jerry Lewis is somehow able to steal away Tony Curtis's women on him. Because, you know, all the ladies love a guy acting like a retarded man-child, making weird noises like, ah, ah, ah. Oh, that cinder fella. Who's minding the store? Damn, I wouldn't mind him minding my uh, store. <laughs> Absurd in every conceivable respect, and botched even if you removed Lewis from the picture, as two of the ladies are not only nobodies, but aren't even that appealing. Only the poor man's honor Blackman, the deadly bees and lust for her vampire Susanna Lee's worth spending any time with. Blech. Well, far as I could tell, this is a troubled film, because I wonder how they got along during the making of it. I wonder who talked them into doing it. Because they were both fighting over top billing. Wow. And and they were both fighting over uh, Tony and Jerry. They were both fighting over uh, post-production and the distribution, how they appear on the poster and how they appear in the credits. It's that weird. It's, it's a film that neither one of them looks comfortable doing. Actually, it looks like Jerry was forced to be Dean in this movie. Yeah. And, and Tony was forced to be Tony. Now, we, we just spoke of a, a Tony and Dean Martin film a little while ago that actually wasn't as bad as this and actually is preferable to this. It's better. And I think Jerry knew that. And then maybe Jerry was trying, Jerry Lewis was trying to like, well, you know, he did a picture with Dean, which wasn't too bad. I'll do a picture with Tony too. And maybe in Jerry's mind, this would be a better movie 
Well, what happened was, and again, this is all assumption and assertion. What happened was Jerry got forced into the, to the Dean Martin role, which I'm sure he resented. And, and Tony, being Tony, was in a Tony role. And then, you know, they're both stars. And then Jerry's starting to wane around this time period, you know. Although, you know, he, he would, he would, he would have some ups and downs. But yeah, it's not a film anybody fondly remembers. So next he does uh, Chamber of Horrors. He's barely in it. He wasn't even credited, so it's, it's almost like a cameo. It's a cameo. I wanted to mention just because I always love this film. It's uh, the one with Patrick O'Neill with the horror horn and the fear flasher. Gimmickly, but it's almost like a Jack the Ripper sort of a thing, but more fun and exciting than that, more of an adventure. I guess it's like a Fu Manchu film in certain respects. And it also has one of the most beautiful girls of her time, especially for blondes, a woman named Laura Devon, who was really on a couple of things. I saw her in something recently. I think it was... Uh, the invaders and uh she did chamber of horrors and she did one or two other things and then just disappeared uh so she wasn't long for hollywood but really really gorgeous woman you know who i'm talking about if you know but anyway i just love that film so worth mentioning no no i, I love that film too it's it's one of the the story goes it was made for television and it was too shocking for tv i'm like what were they on <laughs> um no, seriously, it was uh, Cesare Denover, uh they were supposed to do, uh, it was a pilot called House of Wax, and it, 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 and it and not only is, is, is it that good, it's beyond that good. There's another film of its, like, uh, same year or the around this time period called Dark Intruder with Leslie Nielsen, which is also intended to be a, a pilot, and they just, it was too rough. They're like, damn. And your boy, William Conrad, he narrates Chamber of Horrors. Yes, Remember that? Mm-hmm. So next up was one that I really wanted to see, but uh, the place where I was going to get it from is closed down for a couple of months, which, not with my wife, you don't, which had Verna Lisi in it, uh, who I think was from How to Murder Your Wife with Jack Lemmon. Mm-hmm. Very pretty Italian yeah, girl. Yeah. Uh, but So I had not seen that one, unfortunately. I want to someday. There's a couple of more comedies, like On My Way to the Crusades, I Met a Girl Who, and that's actually the name of this, winds up ever dirty. Ever Dirty Baby, Ever Eva Dirty Baby, right. that one too. Yeah. Does the uncredited voice, I guess, on a phone in Rosemary's Baby, of all things. And here's where things kind of get strange. 1968, he does The Boston Strangler. It's a weird biopic of the then-recent serial killer Albert DeSalvo. A bunch of old ladies let in what they either see as a familiar face or assume as the fix-it man, only to fall victim to a real sicko thereafter. The cops pull in the usual suspects, dirty phone callers, glory hole users, perverts of all stripes... But it takes more than that to catch the perp, particularly after he changes his M.O. Tony actually doesn't show up until after the hour mark, watching the funeral parade for JFK in a grungy flat with screaming kids and a weird, thickly accented foreign housewife. He's not in this planet in terms of accents either. With a broad, poorly done, bastin accent he slips out of in the very next scene, what he is is grim and very unlike any of his prior roles, be they the youthful underdog heroic type or the fan club favorite pseudo-Elvis comedy boy toy he mainly became known for. He really gets a Shakespearean mad scene at the very end of the film, and surprisingly enough, underplays it. Just enough so you get the point, but hardly the boisterous blowhard you'd expect from the son of Taras Bulba. This was a definite tipping point in the guy's career, leading to more interesting, darker roles, but also possibly pushing him into some uncomfortable limbo with the studios, where they had no idea how to market an aging marquee idol who'd so determinedly savaged his safe pretty boy on the make image with this role. He wound up spending the 70s first in Europe doing The Persuaders, but later falling into heroin abuse and a real slowdown in the number of roles he was offered or followed through on. 
Much like the beloved crooner Tony Bennett, he was a creature of the early to mid-60s who vanished off the radar for the next few decades, only to return in a more respected elder status come the 90s, in Bennett's case via a fortuitous MTV Unplugged performance that led to a family Christmas special and a boom in record shows and concerts. But in Curtis' case, an autobiography and of all things I had mentioned earlier, a long stint in the lovely CD vintage Hollywood gossip reenacted series Hollywood Babylon, which honestly is long overdue for DVD release. I'd love to see that again. Peter and Jane's boring father, Henry Fonda, is the outside cop brought in for the case who gets Tony to confess. Perpetual drunken Arthur Kennedy is a more ineffectual local sidekick. Crazy Sally Kellerman then doing stuff like The Invaders and about to do the match movie with Elliot Gould and Donald Sutherland as the original Hot Lips is Tony's bizarre choice of a wife. Blackula William Marshall is his typical imperious stentorian self as the attorney general who sticks Fonda on the strangle in the first place. There's a lot of weird pre-Woodstock, just post-Thomas Crown affair use of multi-screen cameras, so you have three or four people on screen at the same time doing separate and unrelated things. Work for Woodstock, but in fiction cinema, I just found this technique distracting and rather pointless. What, it wasn't moving fast enough for you? You had to run at double and triple speed? Or better let unimportant bits fall into the editor's knife? Not a favorite, but you have to give the guy credit. He sought out a stretch roll way outside his comfort zone, and terrible Boston accent aside, he really nailed it. Oh, it's a great movie. It's a great movie. It's a very uncomfortable movie to watch. It's one of the, it's the earliest, to my knowledge, Hollywood versions of a serial killer. Biography for serial killer. This guy was vicious, Albert DuSalvo. And you just know. You just, I mean, you just have to know in your, your heart. To let, like, Curtis and Fonda, Kennedy, you know, you know these guys, you know, they've been around for a long time. What? drew them to this until unless you know curtis was like maybe curtis was the one he said you know what i want to really do this and he talked to these other guys says look I, I really want to do this and he might have been the one i don't know much uh behind the scenes stuff that went on behind this film but i mean we could research it further but we had a lot of research to do for this show yeah yeah he, he might have been the one to actually try to get this made it's an amazing performance. Yeah, you know, quibbles about the, the accent aside. It's not terrible, actually. And moody and, 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 uh, yeah, I get what you're saying about the split screen, which, uh, what's his name? Uh, Brian De Palma worked with like two or three years later. He started working with that. Uh, oh, you know who else did the split screen? Uh, Thomas Grand Affair. And I really, this is going to sound strange, but I really liked it better in the Boston Strangler because I got the really, the real feeling of an uneasiness. You know, he's knocking on the door and the door's about, he walks in and, you know, he knocks it out of the park in this picture. And it's a shame. It's a damn shame that Hollywood, but I'm going to get in a second to why. It's a damn shame that Hollywood didn't really recognize this amazing performance by Tony Curtis, of all people. Amazing fucking performance by an actor. I, I'm serious. This is why I was on you. Let's not do it until you watch this. Mm -hmm. Because I think the problem was he was Tony Curtis. He was a guy with a history, comedies, romance, romantic movies, you know, blah, blah, you know, safe films, safe family films. And here he takes on a real life character and it's, you know, you know, it's a docudrama too. It's got that feel, a bit of a docudrama thing. Mm -hmm. I always felt bad. Thank you, Godzilla. <laughs> I always felt bad. Godzilla agrees with me. See, if Godzilla says I'm right, I'm right. 
I always, I always felt bad that after this, you didn't see him doing heavier work. And the next, he didn't work so much after this, too, which is an interesting thing. Have you seen the next batch of pictures? Well, or should I? from here on out, if you don't count the three pictures here that come right afterwards, uh, he doesn't do a hell of a lot until 1975. He winds up doing a couple of uh, six or seven performances where he drops in on Laugh-In, which a lot of people did at the time. Even Nixon showed up there a couple of times. But really, there's nothing happening except for that one year he heads over to UK and does the Persuaders, which we'll get to in a minute. But I'm sure you were looking to touch on... Oh, and he did one episode of the Shaft TV series, if anybody even remembers that existed. <laughs> but there's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. The guys are just not working. Well, except for yeah, a... those Daring Young Men and the Jointy Jalopies, and suppose they give a war and nobody came. Two really bad comedies. Oh, you thought they were really bad. Well, they actually aren't that good. Monte Color or Bust, which actually... Those daring, daring young men, the jaunty jalopies. I think was trying, 65, was trying to, to touch, tap into that great escape kind of feel, which, again, I like that great escape. Oh, geez, shoot me. Great race, great race kind of feel. I was just talking about that about 20 minutes ago. And, but a feel, it's, it's more of a British film. Susan Hampshire, Terry Thomas, Barville. You know, shoved in there from France. Lando Bozanka is in this Italian guy. Peter Cook, Dudley Moore. So you know this already sounds like a blender of a film. Let's throw everybody in there. Tony really seems not happy in this film. It's another thing. It's another race around the world kind of thing. His co-driver, Susan Hampshire. Okay, that's fine. It's better than Keenan Wynn in the other picture. Uh, he plays a different different. You know, a different role in this. It's, it's, it's sort of like in that, what was I suggesting before, how The Great Race was an earlier version of Cannonball Run. This is even more so because we got all these people, Gert Frobe was in this, Jack Hawkins, Terry Thomas. You would spot, you will because I, I watched it for the show, you will spot some pythons in small roles. Very interesting to play pin the tail on the famous face. But <laughs> is it fun? Not really. And and I was I was very disappointed after the Boston Strangler. What I did like more, and I wonder if you saw it, was You Can't Win Them All. No, I never saw that one. It's a lot. Yeah, it's actually a lot of fun because, first of all, it's, it's directed by Peter Collinson, who's this strange British filmmaker. To give you an idea, what he made was uh, The Penthouse. People still talk to this day about that being such a really rough film. The original Italian job, Fright, Straight On Till Morning, Innocent Bystanders, The End There Were None, the 74 one with Oliver Reed, which is pretty cool. Um, yeah. He was an unusual filmmaker. Toward the end, he started making films that were more safer, you know, to stay, to stay, to pay the checks. This picture was a co-production with Turkey. So you got Charles Bronson now being a name. It's 1970, so Charles Bronson making all these Italian films. He's now becoming a name. It's pre-Death Wish by two years, but Tony's already a, already a name. So this takes place during the Greek-Turkish War, I don't know, early 20s, right? Who cares, right? But they are two different sides of the coin, and they wound up joining forces to battle the, the aggressors. Yeah, I know. Uh, but it's a fun movie. It's got a fast, big, 
production. I think Columbia put, uh, put, put up the money for this. <clears throat> you recognize Captain Kronos in this, Horst Janssen, uh, Patrick McGee, Michel Mercier is the uh, French, is the, the go-to chick in this. It's a very interesting film. It's, it's a big adventure production. The problem with it, it's about the Greek-Turkish War. So I, I, it's a movie I've seen a few times. And I always wanted to like it more, but I was like, why couldn't they just make this a Western? Why couldn't they just make this something else? I don't know. Next. Okay, so next up, he does The Persuaders. And this is one of the things that I love him for always. More so having seen it again, you know, in the last year or so. This here was an odd television series at the time when there was a lot of these sort of things. Roger Moore had just come off The Saint and was not quite. He was about to become the next Bond, but not yet. And Tony was kind of at this crossroads. And somebody, I think it was Sir Lou Grade, got the idea to put these two together as rich I'm not sure what the hell the thing was I know they were both supposed to be rich industrialists or some kind of crap like that playboys and Tony of course was the American one and Roger Moore kind of in foreshadowing was sort of a lord you know landed lord over there and they basically even though they were rivals in their real life they got involved helping out this one old judge I guess it was an acquaintance of both of them and he got the idea, you know what, we can go and fight crimes, because they you know, solve some kind of crime for him or whatever, that the police can't get to using you know, your unique talents and your way of getting around and knowing people and whatever the hell else you got. So he throws them together, and it's this kind of really spurious start for a series. Ends up being one of the most entertaining of these damn things you're ever going to say. I mean, it's don't really think the Avengers, but if you're thinking something like The Saint or Secret Agent or... You know, Department S uh, with Jason King, that kind of thing. Push it a little bit further out left, ground it a little bit more because of Tony Curtis, and make it loads more, I don't want to say warm hearted, but he brings that. Funny. It's a funny series. I can't picture an episode, I can't remember an episode that didn't like lean with a smile on my face. If for nothing else, just for all the ad libs that Tony's throwing, the way he's visibly ribbing. Roger Moore. You know, I understand that behind the scenes he could be a little bit difficult. They showed some, one of the extras, and somebody was there filming, and he seemed a little bit prima donna-ish and Hollywood-ish. But on screen, he was fantastic. And, you know, it also kind of, a, it's an American thing. You got these guys, you know, Roger Moore, very proper British. You know, how he was in real life, who the hell knows. But, you know, he comes off as the old school you know, oh, the queen country, oh, you know, have some tea, you know, fuddy-duddy. And even though he does have that boyish, you know, saint thing where you get the twinkle on his eye and punch him in the mouth, you know, pretend he didn't do it afterwards. Oh, that was nothing. Oh. Whereas Tony Curse is coming in there like, right out of the Bronx, hey, you know what, I'll do something for you. Do something for me. Hey, where the hell are you? Get over here. You see, I'm fighting this guy. I'm getting my ass kicked here. That kind of a thing. And always stealing each other's girls. And it, it, it's just so much fun. It's such a odd couple buddy comedy type series, and yet it's not intended to be a comedy, really. It's, it's still supposed to be an action-adventure-slash-crime show. You really never see anything like it. I can't, even trying to find parallels to it, it's like, yeah, but not really. Yeah, but not really. No, not quite. It falls between the cracks, and that makes it all the more special. I really wish that it lasted longer than it did, but I think that more getting cast for Bond probably would have killed it regardless. They did make a movie out of it, I remember, 
which was just uh, combining a couple episodes that might have, may or may not have been related and putting it out theatrically or for TV movies. They did that with a lot of stuff back then. No, I, 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 I remember seeing this on, uh, gosh, what was it? Years and years ago. Years and years ago. <laughs> there were a lot of ITV yeah. stuff shown on uh, American television on the East Coast, where her and I are located. And uh, I, being slightly younger than him, <laughs> older, older, being slightly older than him, <laughs> remember when there would be ITV network nights. I'm like, what the fuck is this? And they would bring over a bunch of uh, comedy stuff and a couple of action things. And that's when I first saw the Persuaders. I'm like, what is this? Is this like the Saint? Or is this like the Avengers? What is this? What is this? Yep. And I got hooked. And then they, Benny Hill was one of the things they brought over. And, um, of course, we know people are Benny Hill fanatics. <laughs> oh, gosh, there were so many. There were a lot of guys sitting on couches. Not Johnny Carson type, but close. And the ITV even brought over some Australian guys. Oh, yeah. And there was there was some Aussie shows, too. Uh, there were yeah, fast... Paul Hogan. The Paul Hogan show was great. The Paul Hogan show was way before Crocodile Dundee. Oh, yeah. And there was another guy, Dave, Dave, Dave somebody. Dave somebody. I kept thinking Dave Biner, but, you know, like John Biner, but... No, I don't know. You, you I know, know what you're thinking. You know who I'm thinking of. And this guy was outrageous. Very, I, I forgot, folks, I'm sorry. I forgot whether he was British or he was Australian, but it was very dry. I think he, he was Aussie. But he had the most straight, out there things and a guest or several guests. And then he would have these little jokey snippet things. And they were so bizarre. I was like, what the fuck am I looking at? Clive James is an analog, but he didn't quite go that far. No, he didn't quite go that far. And so, so the Perspectives was another one of these shows. I'm like, I got hooked. And then you didn't see it anymore. Then you saw it on reruns, and then it was hard to find. And then, luckily, I came out as a, as a set, box set, not too long ago. I love it as much as you do, and I agree with you, everything you said about the show. It's what a odd, what an odd combining of... And I'll tell you this, even if you don't like Tony Curtis... Before I knew or cared about him, I knew who he was. I'd seen a couple of his movies like Spartacus, where who cares? But I was a Roger Moore fan because I loved him as Bond back then. That was my Bond back in the day. Yeah, nowadays I prefer Sean Connery, but you know, as a, at that age, that was the time. And I went in there. Okay, I loved him as a saint. Fine. Okay, here, look, he's in another show. Cool. And I walked out. I didn't care so much about him. I became a Tony Curtis fan from that. So that should say something. It's it's a fun show. One thing that did throw me, and I wanted to mention here, because I mentioned it to you before, uh, one thing that did throw me is that season two was just as good as season one, but yeah. season this was a two-season show, two, two full seasons, is that Tony appeared physically different. Yes. And, yeah, and, and I'm not quite sure what was going on with that. Like, all right, they it was a 71, 72, something like that. And so don't tell me in the second year, the guy went all gray and he suddenly had a lined face. So I'm not quite sure what was going on there. Uh, I did read, your, read the Roger Moore autobiography and really didn't have much. I don't think he said anything negative about Tony. And he, I think he said some positive things about the show. I didn't read Tony's autobiography as of yet so I, I don't know what he had to say about the show i read it a long time ago i do remember him mentioning it and talking about how great it was to work with roger moore and all that but mm. i don't remember anything negative or anything like oh yeah no. in the second year this happened to me so 
Yeah, yeah, no, it's just that I, I, I remember like suddenly Tony's famous jet black hair was now streaking with gray in season two. And like, did I miss like 10 years of the show? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you just decided to stop dying it. You know, I don't, I don't really know what happened, but you're I don't right. Know, yeah, I don't know what happened, but it was it was a bit of a like, well, what happened there? But anyway, it didn't this, affect the show, though. So No, no, it didn't affect the show. But anybody suddenly says if they buy this. And we do, both of us, recommend that you oh, yeah. look us out, see some clips on YouTube or something, and you're really going to enjoy this show. If you like The Avengers, if you like Department S, and you like The Saint, you're going to love this one. It's actually, in, well, I don't want to say better than The Avengers. It's different from The Avengers. No, it's not. But it's better than the others. I think it's better than The Saint. And I do think it's, even though I really love Department S, I think it's better than Department S. So. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, next. All right, so, again, he takes a couple of years where nothing's going on. All right, even if you want to say those movies you mentioned before, that was all 69 and 70. So he's waiting until 71 to do The Persuaders. Okay, fine. 72, out. So what happens for the next couple of years? Nothing. He really doesn't do a damn thing. So 1975, he gets a job in a TV movie, The Count of Monte Cristo. It's one of Lou Grade's many high-grade starfucker affairs of the era. It's strange that this one was only produced as a TV movie rather than getting a theatrical release. Then again, it's a rather slight affair, adapted from the Alexandre Dumas book. Itself already a fairly simplistic courtier adventure story that manages to come off even more cursory herein. The titular character, Anjin San himself, Richard Chamberlain, is a ship captain <clears throat> who is stolen from the very rehearsal before his marriage by a trio of jealous rivals. Tony Curtis is the one who only wants his girl as a rival to her affections. Others include a pissed-off shipmate, Donald Pleasance, who basically wants his job, and the DA, Louis Jordan, who knows Chamberlain has evidence on him of the very crime they imprisoned him for, which is fighting for the newly exiled Napoleon. So to get him out of the way and keep his mouth shut, he's locked away for life without recourse to trial. Unfortunately for them, after several years in chains, he's aided in his escape and led to a treasure that allows him to reinvent himself as the titular mysterious count and wend his way into courtly culture sufficient to get a clever revenge on the shitheads who did this to him by exposing their subsequent misdeeds and possibly take his girl, Dracula's Kate Nelligan, back once again. After that, it's a rather tame and wordy take on the standard boys' adventure tale, hardly as physical and exciting as the likes of Ivanhoe or Under Two Flags, much as something like Excalibur, or even similarly court-set adventures like the Scarlet Pimpernel, a perennial Japanese favorite, The Rose of Versailles, which was made into at least one quite engaging Tezuka anime around the same time. The sets and costuming are quite lavish, and the acting is, as you expect from our four leads, quite broad, but it becomes apparent that both Pleasance and Curtis were only available for a few days at best. They're barely in the damn things that plays out. It's still fun, and vaguely in the sensibility of those Three Musketeers films that were so big in the era, and which we'd spoken to in our Oliver Reed show, but it's a slight entertainment, and the lack of sex and bloodshed, not to mention the jarring fade-to-black commercial breaks inserted throughout, keep this one far less of a big event than it should have been. It's okay, it's just, eh, it's got its limitations. Oh, I can't, I can't anything to what you just said. I, I agree with you on everything. So uh, next up, he does The Last Tycoon. Ilya Kazan, who did the overwrought Brando Noir on the waterfront and the seedy baby doll, blows his final film credit on this snooze fest. Pulled from a Harold Pinter play that riffs on an F. Scott Fitzgerald book that never got finished. Talk about two completely unrelated authors. The Birthday Party, The Room, and The Great Gatsby? What? This mess is a riff on MGM impresario Irving Thalberg. Robert De Niro plays that. Tony's effectively a bit part here, and it's a weird one. He shows up for a few minutes in De Niro's office to tell him that he can't get it up for his new wife, despite his reputation as a big-screen Latin lover and heartthrob. You never see him again until a short sequence where he's Bogart in Casablanca or a close knockoff. That's it. 
Nope, doesn't work. There was a thing for art house and neo-noir in the mid to late 70s, and a lot of it worked quite well. You know, Elliot Gould in The Long Goodbye, Robert Mitchum in Farewell My Lovely come immediately to mind, and we discussed both in our Elliot Gould and Charlotte Rampling shows, respectively. But this? He must have been shooting for an Oscar because it has that waste of time begging for critical plaudits vibe, and so many big-name stars phoning in a scene or two. Ray Milland, Robert Mitchum, Jack Nicholson, Dana Andrews, Donald Pleasance, Jean Moreau, Teresa Russell, Angelica Houston, John Carradine. What a waste. Well, De Niro is is tough to. Uh, give me a second here. I want to I want to get this right. De Niro's tough to discuss because when he applies himself, the guy is one of our best actors. I I, I really believe that. You know, not overall is one of our best actors. Everything he does is amazing. No, but when he applies himself, he's he's fucking amazing. Like that recent three and four hours Scorsese thing, the takeaway was when De Niro is in that for the last hour, is amazing. But that being said, De Niro doing a Harold Pinter screenplay directed by Elia Kazan <laughs> with an all-star cast, you're already talking heavy. And then it's based on F. Scott's Fitzgerald thing. And like, De Niro just came off of Mean Streets. He hasn't even done The Godfather Part 2. Well, he just did The Godfather Part 2. I'm sorry. And it's it's weighty. It's weighty on this guy, I'm sure. No matter who is passing in and out of this movie, as favors for somebody, Ilya Kazan is a very, very, always was a very well-known filmmaker. Harold Pinter from, from stage. And, you know, this is, this is reeking with Starfucker juice. Um, I didn't like it i never did i watched it because of the cast but one you skipped over i don't know if you did it by mistake or you were going to get to it is lepke yeah that's menachem golan from canon everybody knows menachem golan uh, there's a great canon films documentary actually there's several out there we did a show on canon films we did a show on canon films and and i don't know if we mentioned this movie we might have we talked about so many of the damn pictures but this one's directed by menachem who was one of the canon guys, one of the cousins. And this had an interesting cast. And Jeanette Comer and Michael Callan and uh, Gianni Russo, who was also in The Godfather, Milton Berle, Vic Tabak as Lucky Luciano, and Martin Cove. The thing was, being a low-to-mid-budget gangster movie that was sort of like Lucky Luciano or the Veloci papers that did pretty well. This is actually not too bad. Tony was pretty good. He was playing a Jewish American gangster, Louis Bukalter, Lepke, hence the title. It was pretty good, but how do you market this kind of throwback picture, which already by then became <clears throat> passe. The bad takeaway about this film that Tony Curtis admitted in his autobiography that he started to become heavily addicted to coke, pain, during filming of this movie. That's the bad thing. But Lecky is worth watching. If you guys could find it anywhere, streaming somewhere, it's 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 an interesting canon film. It's not referred to that often. After that, he does Sextet, which is a bizarre Ooh. fiasco for Mae West, a very aged Mae West. I think she was in her 70s with uh, Timothy Dalton, a young Timothy Dalton, well before he became Bond. And there were a lot of people. I think Burt Reynolds was in it. It, it was Ringo, a... Keith Moon. 
it's one of those crazy musicals that falls somewhere between like those Ken Russell ones that they got, the rock ones like Tommy and uh, Quadrophenia, and weird stuff like The Apple or Can't Stop the Music with the Village People. But I have not seen it since I was a kid, so I can't really comment on it. Well, it's 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 so bad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that I remembered. <laughs> it's so bad that uh, I remember that the the guy who was a complete nobody called Van McCoy is in this because there's suddenly a break in the film. I think it's an hour and ten minutes into the ninety minute running time, mm-hmm. where he shows up and goes, "Do the hustle, do 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 do," do <laughs> which was a big hustle hit for Van McCoy that nobody yes, will ever remember. Um. That's all he's known for. The yeah, I remember Link Ringo and George Hamilton, Alice Cooper, Dom DeLuise, Timothy Dalton. I mean, there's a lot. And yeah. you remember the whole conceit here is basically they're all hot for her, or she's supposed to be the big hot sex symbol, Mae West. I'm like, yeah, that's great in 1930. <laughs> yeah, this is 1978. Now, I, I, I get it. We've, we've acknowledged this in some of our sleazier shows. There's a thing for Mills and a thing for Gills. <laughs> I don't know where this will fall under. Um, I have no idea. <laughs> it just comes under um. Because <laughs> what, what year is this? This is 77. 77, 78. Myra was eight years earlier, yep. which was another, another one starring, starring uh, Mae West, Raquel Welch. Yeah, another disaster. And, and Rex Reed. And so, <laughs> Involving transsexual... Uh, which is that was the, the woman that became a man that became a woman. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, God that knows. was a better film actually. Than this, this but is yeah. a weird, weird movie. Um, I I'm not sure if it's been re-released and what they can do with it, but uh, yeah, it's it's a thing. <laughs> <laughs> so next up, he does something that I consider much better, but which a lot of people consider his nadir, the Manitou. Mm. What about uh, what's his name, Gitchy? Gitchy Manitou. You don't call Gitchy Manitou. Oh, yeah? Well, he's about to get a person-to-person call from me. Collect. The 70s on some level were all about attempting to replicate earlier cultural touch points. Rosemary's Baby kicked off the decade and closed the 60s with Ira Levin's dark paranoia and mistrust of all surrounding, reflecting the mood of the nation in the wake of Altamont and the Manson murders. The summer of love was over. But more, the service veneer of occult forces using unwitting young women to bring evil into the world became a thing. Beyond the door, the devil within her, the omen. Even more industrial, ecological caused ones inspired by the thalidomide babies in Three Mile Island, like prophecy and it's alive, played into this general fear of parenthood, the changeling, the child that can't possibly hail from its parents. So slotted into this train, oh, and I didn't mention the brood, there's another one. So slotted into this train of cinematic thought that almost creates its own subgenre comes one of the Animal Attack Echo Horror Specialist William Girdler's more unusual and entertaining efforts, where a balding Tony Curtis's hustle is playing medium, astrologer, tarot reader, complete with a homemade cape with felt and zodiacal symbols all over it. In between bilking old ladies out of their retirement money and bickering with the hooker who lives across the hall, Tony and the psychic friend is reunited with old girlfriend Susan Strasberg, here looking similarly washed out and almost unrecognizable as a nappy-haired redhead. She's in a panic because she's been afflicted with a tumor on her neck that turns out to be more of a fetus, and now she's chanting in her sleep and psychically influencing both surgeons and Tony's customers to kill themselves. 
It turns out that Girl is also tapping into another staple of the era, the horror film driven by Native American lore. Wolfen, Prophecy, Nightwing, Shadow of the Hawk, you name it. Even Altered States taps into this strain. Wolfen, Prophecy, Nightwing, Shadow of the Hawk, you name it. Even Altered States taps into this strain. In this case, it's super cheesy. Her baby is actually a native shaman coming back to take revenge on the White Eyes for invading, introducing fire water, stealing land for beads and blankets full of smallpox, etc. Tony, concerned about his ex, particularly after a one-night stand reunion right before her attempted surgery, tries the avenues at his disposal. He holds a seance, he contacts a specialist professor, and finally drags in a native shaman to fight back. His fee? A hundred thousand bucks to the Native American Education Fund, and some tobacco for himself. What a swell guy. It sounds profoundly silly, and in some ways may well be, but it's filled with name actors. Tony, Strasberg, Michael Ansara, Burgess Meredith, Stella Stevens, even Anne Southern show up, and everyone gives a perfectly acceptable performance, not least Tony, who seems kind of into this throughout, even toning down the expected campiness he's prone to delivering in more ostensibly serious roles. You know, it's a cheesy movie, but I always liked it, and I still do. So, what's your take? Well, well I think that, that one of the things that was really important to, to, to note about this film is that Tony actually takes it serious he actually turns tones down the campiness he tones down he knows what he's what he's doing and he knows what kind of movie it is but for some reason i don't know michael michael ansara who actually is an american indian was an american indian actor um who actually has a pretty good role in this uh much better than those ted v michaels things he did um <laughs> And you know, he was, you know, he was in Star Trek. We know that. We know that. We know anybody seen, but he was in Star Trek, you know. Um, he was in Buck Rogers. And Buck Rogers. <laughs> but yeah, you know, maybe he talked to Tony and said, you know, this isn't as bad as it looks. <laughs> and it's funny, you know, it, I read the book by Graham Masterson, Masterton, and I thought it was a pretty good book. And William Girdler, interesting guy, because. He made some schlock, and then he made some almost not schlock, and this is probably amongst the best things he ever did. But I would say for late period Tony Curtis, he actually is not making it a travesty and actually is doing pretty good. Yeah, there's some smirky moments like, come on. But you know what? It's, it's, it's a load of fun, and it's it's played really straight. I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's made. If there's one negative I have about this, it's the fucking Lalo Schifrin score. What's up with Lalo Schifrin? <laughs> Everything. Boom, dum, doom, 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 doom. Uh, Mission Impossible was like 15 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> he just keeps churning out that quasi Mission Impossible score. But anyway. The funny thing is, you mentioned reading the book, and I was like, you know what? I think I read it as a kid, too. My mother would get all those crappy books. Like, I remember reading The Sentinel. So I may well have read The Manitou, and if I remember correctly, it was actually a lot scarier than the movie turned out to be. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, if you, if you, re- okay, so you remembered bringing it, there are some books you can't really translate into yeah. film because it's just too terrifying. How are you going to do this? Yep. That's the problem that Clive Barker had, who, who tried turning his own stuff into movies and some people love them, and sometimes they're unwatchable. They're hard. They're rough. You know who actually works sometimes is Stephen King. Sometimes. I've got several miniseries that I actually liked of his that were pretty close to the books in a lot of ways. But if you get to something like, say, Lovecraft, forget it. There's no way to put it on film. No, there's no way to put it on film. But then again, some of the, the Stephen King movies are like, I'm not even going to waste my time. Oh, yeah, the movies are terrible. I'm talking about the miniseries here. All right. Yeah. So, so next... 
All right, so next up, Bad News Bears Go to Japan, same year. The third in a series of especially annoying children's films from the 70s. Strangely to modernize, they were geared directly at kids of the day, who were a lot more savvy, foul-mouthed, and prone to mature bad habits than today's overproductive marshmallow crowd would ever believe. They curse up a storm. They try to pick up older girls at bars. They smoke. They drink. They gamble. And they're a hell of a lot more savvy than the adults in the picture, this time being bottom feeder promoter Tony Curtis, who gets roped into a ridiculous scheme the luckless team of misfit little leaguers come up with to hold up the American end over in a newly baseball-crazed Japan. It's not funny, none of these films were, but it's a bit more worthwhile as an early travelogue where the, quote, weird customs of Japanese contemporary culture were first exposed to Western audiences, if played for ostensible last. The ad with the Japanese baseball player beating up Godzilla is far less manic, but vaguely on par with Pee Wee Herman's version of the same from his first movie, but of course you don't get his Crashing and Twisted Sister video here too. And while the kid is pretty dirty looking, the oldest one's culturally challenged romance with a typically Seiko Masuda coiffed local of the era comes off sweeter than you'd expect. Tony's pretty sleazy here and working a hard style shtick throughout. No, I have nothing to add to that. Although I did say I, I don't. And I didn't watch it for the show. 1980, the mirror cracked, star-studded stinker with a gaggle of 60s divas on the downturn, which quite possibly opened the door for Sweeney Todd's stage shrew Angela Lansbury to stop paying Auntie Maine and reinvent herself as a half-wit Miss Marple on the execrable murder she wrote. <laughs> Here she plays the titular know-it-all, shown first at some small-town countryside town hall old movie screening, telling everyone who done it and how after the projector snags, and the film melts down to Denalmont. Phew, helpful to have a know-it-all old bag on hand just in case that happens, huh? Despite being the sort of low-rent rural dead-end town where they still hold maypole revels and potato sack races at the church picnic, they've been location scouted for a comeback movie for, wait for it, a pair of washed-up old divas, Liz Taylor and Kim Novak. Their rivals going way back, so you get a few jokes about how fat Liz got and how dumb Kim is before the obligatory murder happens, and it's an accident. A fan drinks a poisoned wine intended for Liz. Tony is the crusty old producer husband of Novak, who seems to be as royally pissed at director Rock Hudson as his wife Liz is at Novak. What fun couples! We should invite them to parties together, eh? There's a whole lot of nothing that ensues, mainly seeming to point to someone trying to off large Liz, but as it happens, she's the baddie, knocking off some annoying fangirl who, wait for this, infected her pregnant ass with measles last time they met, causing her kid to come out retarded and brain damaged. So she poisons her, poisons the blackmailer, and finally poisons herself when she's about to get caught. Definitely one for the Liz fans. Terrible, terrible waste of time unless you're a real gossipy old-time star fucker who gets off and seeing the decrepit detritus of yesteryear in their prune juice days sniping at each other. Despite Rock and even Novak getting a reasonable bit of screen time, Liz doesn't manage to squeeze out a frame with all her girth. And Tony's barely in the damn thing. Oh, I, 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 I don't even remember the mirror cracked. Although I did say it. I did say it. I, yeah, it's one of those. And it was a big stink at the time, if you remember. Yeah, it was a, it was a big thing, yeah. So uh, next four years, he doesn't do too much. He's in weird stuff like Brainwaves. And, uh, well, that was an uh, Oli Lamel film. It's one of the better Oli Lamel films. Uh, Olivia, you know, he would make those movies with Susanna Love, who was his wife. Yes. And Brainwaves is one where I think she had a brain tumor and there was like schizophrenia or another. Uh, another. Tony was actually pretty decent in that. I remember that. And Balboa was, I think, one of those Fred um, Fred Williamson pictures. He would throw to Tony to give him some rent money. <laughs> now you can actually go all the way up to 1985, because uh, he pops up in some things like you know, The Fall Guy on TV or Vegas. or yeah, I'm not sure what else. That's pretty much it. He does Insignificance. 
In my lifetime, the Swiss authorities called me a German fascist, disregarding the fact that I'm Jewish, as you delicately referred to a moment ago. And in Germany, because I was Jewish, I was called a Zionist conspirator. And then I come to democratic America, some small-minded people call me both a German fascist and a Zionist conspirator. And now you are suggesting that I'm a Soviet communist. Well, listen, two weeks ago, two magazines at the same time variously called me a warmonger and a conscientious objector in review of the same speech. It's unbelievable. So stands the most significant line of this depressing mid-80s stinker. Strangely much beloved of the art house crowd and originally of minor interest to yours truly, solely due to a long-standing Teresa Russell fetish. The basic idea is a sort of slam on 1950s America couched in a statement about how people never truly relate to each other because nobody bothers to get to know anyone else, who they really are down beneath the image. As Pete Townsend once put it, eminence front, it's a put-on. That would seem to be solid enough a basis for a film, particularly when you got Tony Curtis playing a dyspeptic racist and, as hinted, sexually confused Joseph McCarthy, who's trying to get Albert Einstein, played by some nobody who comes off like a younger, skinnier Walter Matthau here, who gets a long, strange visit from the dim-witted, promiscuous-by-training intellectual groupie Marilyn Monroe, Russell, which eventually brings all of them into conflict over an even dumber and quite violent Joe DiMaggio, a bloated, sickly-looking Gary Busey. Unfortunately, it's also in the hands of the quirky, regular Russell collaborator Nicholas Rogue, who gave the world such open-ended head-scratchers as The Man Who Fell to Earth in performance, before settling into a rush of Russell films, including Bad Timing, Essential Obsession with Art Garfunkel, Eureka with Rucker Hauer, the director ensemble Aria, Track 29 with Sandra Bernhardt and Gary Oldman, and Cold Heaven with Mark Harmon. Essentially, the only film of his that really made a damn bit of sense was Don't Look Now, and even that was a real downer of a pseudo jala. So what may seem reasonably straightforward and theatrical becomes really screwed up. He uses a lot of flashbacks to former childhood and later life incidents, and eventually some flashing forward to the end of the world before the film reverses and restarts. Characters all leave the picture unfulfilled even before this jiggery-pokery, and there's a lot of sighing and frustration and abusiveness towards each other. No one's redeemed, and in fact, all come out of this scene more tainted than when they started. For what? What grand statement was made, and how has this changed the viewer's life or perceptions of those involved? And as you always say how these 70s endings depress you, this is a movie to slit your wrist by. Just don't expect to be able to offer any explanations why you did, because the film ultimately makes zero sense and is exactly what it advertises itself as being insignificant. Well, Nicholas Rogue has always been a head-scratcher for a filmmaker. His stuff is alternately brilliant, mind-boggling, significant, and insignificant at the same time. Um, this was highly touted when it first came out and then it was like what is this <laughs> <laughs> i mean Teresa is supposed to be a thinly veiled marilyn but and then a lot of it's supposed to be taken from a uh, early 1980s play about marilyn monroe and the people and the men in her life and but it's just very strange and it, it doesn't quite work because it's hard to juggle surreal and campy, mm-hmm. and 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 then with his with the director's particular style of editing and directing, the the coming and going and the back back cutting and the forward cutting. It's it's it's. But I have to say, there's alongside Ken Russell, the only other guy I could think of that makes a movie like that would be Nicholas Rowe. Yeah. So there's yeah. that. There's that. So uh, not long after, in 1986, he does Murder in Three Acts, the TV movie. The 1980s was a prime era for this sort of thing. 
Washed-up actors and actresses from all genres were suddenly being tapped to start mysteries, be they British-origin PBS hoity-toity Roaring Twenties affairs, or cheesy, overly blowsy American primetime series like Murder, She Wrote, Diagnosis Murder, or the terminal marker of personal incontinence, Grape Nuts and Metamucil, that is, Matlock. They're usually on a sliding scale of painful to excruciating torture test to sit through, though I'm sure folks with two feet in the grave appreciate seeing their own still at the top of their mental deductive game, schooling all the youngsters and saving the day every episode. So it was a bit of a surprise to drop this one into the player and find it both engaging and mildly amusing. Maybe it's all down to Tony's typically likable performance, but when even folks like Ustinov, whose Poirot has always been rather questionable, particularly by comparison to the later David Suchet's more accurate take on the character, say themselves admirably, you have to give credit to the screenwriter and director as well, if not the ensemble cast as a whole. Poirot is writing his memoirs as invited to enjoy his sidekick Colonel Hastings, here saved by the rather Kenneth Williams-like overdone comic relief Jonathan Cecil, at a big park in Acapulco held by former big-name Hollywood headliner Tony Curtis. Tony's having something of a second wind in retirement, enjoying both boating and pretty young flame Emma Sams, who bears the rather absurd Freudian moniker of Egg, but matters get complicated when it turns out the party is populated by several of his exes, a bald fat guy named Dr. Strange, and a preacher, the latter of two wind up biting the bullet over the course of the picture. Ustinov, never as terrible as the world's worst pro Albert Finney, but hardly the ideal casting for the role, here delivers a far more relaxed and likable take than usual, perhaps because the snark is kept on a low simmer and he allows the ensemble to carry things. The settings are suitably Franco-esque, Sam's is fresh and attractive, and Tony, despite looking very much his age plus a decade or so, and dressing like a slob throughout, check out some of those tacky British little boy outfits and underwear as outerwear ensembles he's rocking, is pretty likable, as well as delivering a final scene that, while typically a tad overblown, is actually pretty good by his measures. I liked it. You seen this one? I did, but I don't remember it. I'm sorry. <laughs> Okay, so he does a couple of more TV movies, nothing too special. He wound up in a David Hebner movie, <laughs> the interview with David Hebner years ago on Third Eye, and Tony's the mobster, of course. That's called Prime Target in 91. And 92, for uh, a year, 49 episodes, one season, he was the host I had mentioned earlier of Hollywood Babylon, which was Kenneth Anger, famous occultist and gay filmmaker, or I should say avant-garde gay filmmaker, who did things like Scorpio Rising and Lucifer Rising and whatever the hell else. Invocation of my demon brother. These things were all kind of popular in the head circuit back when. He had done these two books back in the 70s where he had gathered together old Hollywood gossip and mm-hmm. photos and whatever. And some of the stuff was, you know, people disprove it, they deny it, whatever. This could have been a double. Who the hell knows? But it was the beginning of the whole, let's not hide the stuff in the closet anymore. Let's, let's kind of out these people for what really went on behind closed doors. It, it was kind of a slap in the face of the Hayes Code. When I grew up, people were really kind of believed in that shit, thought that, like, you know, Doris Day and Rock Hudson were all, like, you know, they didn't have anything below their waists. And they're like, oh, look, good upstanding morals and all that horse shit. And he was just like, are you crazy? Do you know what Hollywood people are like? They're actors. They're actresses. They live in wild party lives. They smoke, you know, they snort drugs and they fuck each other like you wouldn't believe and orgies and God knows what else. Wild parties. So that was kind of what it was all about. All right. It's a little sleazy, but they were fun. And it's eventually spawned this TV show where they would take some better known and less refutable uh, stories from those days and do these little scenarios where they would kind of act them out. Like, I remember one that was hilarious with uh, Danny Kaye pretending he was a cop and visiting uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier in prison to do some, like, gay roughhousing. <laughs> it, was, it was hilarious. I'm like, wow, this is awesome. And especially since you knew that, you know, Danny Kaye was prone to do weird stunts like that and that the two of them were, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of things like that going on in the show. 
And sometimes they were like, you know, the, the scary scandals, like, oh, the Black Dahlia murder or Fatty Arbuckle, that whole thing. But usually it was more of the, the silly stuff, like I just mentioned, the sleazy but funny. And at the end of every show, because Tony was the host at the beginning and sometimes at the interstitials, he'd pop up as the credits were rolling or when they were about to roll. Hi, I'm Tony Curtis. And he would start telling you this story that was totally a non sequitur, had nothing to do with anything in that episode or anybody in that episode. He just started talking about, you know, it was usually Larry Storch. Every time his stories about Larry Storch, he was always finding him on a bar stool somewhere and doing something crazy. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I, my, my good friend, Larry Storch. And he would tell this story, and it didn't really go anywhere. There was never a good point to the story. And then he would make a weird face, like a, a freeze frame, with him like curling his lip or you know, I don't know what the hell he thought he was doing. A weird pose, and it, that was it. And then he'd go to credits. And <laughs> I thought it was the funniest damn thing I ever saw at the age I was at that time. I loved this show, and I loved him in it. And that's around sound. Like I said, he kind of made a comeback for a bit. Uh, he got into the popular eye, and he did his autobiography right around that time, which I had got. I still have it somewhere. Almost as entertaining as that. But I would love to get these again, at least the Tony parts, if nothing else. Do you remember the show at all? Do you have any? I remember seeing, vaguely, I remember, vaguely, I remember seeing some of them. But uh, you got me so curious, so I'm going to have to search it out <laughs> to find, like, I'd like to watch it again because it's so bizarre. <laughs> it was. It was totally bizarre. I remember when I was working at the Library for the Performing Arts when Ken Anger used to come in and uh, he would sit at a table, you know, where it's like I'd look up, I would look at the, you know, because I was a librarian at the time and uh, I'd look at the call slip, Kenneth Anger, no fucking way. And I'd look up and i see him at the table, you know, looking low, yeah, it's Ken, Kenneth Anger. And he would request clippings on people because he was always trying to write something else. He wanted to do another scandalized expose, and I'm like, you're Kenneth Hanger. Wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Watch out, he didn't throw a fit. He was known for being volatile and casting spells and curses on people all the time. <laughs> you know, I never, I never, those kind of people, when I worked there, the people you thought would be weird Weren't except for De Niro. Right. Yeah. The people. Yeah, you told us that story. Yeah, like Tony Randall. You never know how Tony Randall was going to be. And I remember one day, because I name checked Tony Randall earlier, so it's okay. Oh, uh, some guy said to me, hey, is that that guy from The Odd Couple? And I was like, look, I'm looking. I so shit. Yeah. He takes a chair and he pulls it right in front of the desk, right in front of the desk, and sat there across his leg and smiled. Like, you know I'm Tony Randall. I'm like, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a, one of the strangest things that ever happened in my life. I was like, the way you're sitting, dude, like, everybody knows you're Tony Randall. Felix. Was this back when he was doing the thing for Lincoln Center when he was hosting the operas? Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> he, but he would come in. He would come in and, and uh, he would come in and be... I'm just remember, I just remembered who wasn't nice, which was a little sad. That was Darren McGavin. Really? Yeah. Look, I could picture it, though. He was crusty. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. You know, this is post everything, and he comes in looking like Carl Kolchak. <laughs> <laughs> and he didn't want to be bothered. He didn't want to be bothered. He's like, all right, fine, fucking sit there, you old bastard. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, back to Tony. So, yeah, he does a couple more things that I had seen at the time, like The Mummy Lives, which was awful. It was TV movies, basically. Christmas in Connecticut, which was awful. I think it actually had Schwarzenegger in it as well. 
and naked in New York, which I did see. Tony is barely in this early 90s stinker, ostensibly one of those slacker-era rom-coms like When Harry Met Sally or Singles, but far more forgettable. It's a weird, disjointed autobiography surrounding the always weird Eric Stoltz as an aspiring playwright, his milquetoast girlfriend Mary Louise Parker, and his gay pal Ralph Macchio, told in flashbacks from fourth-wall-breaking nonsense cribbed unsuccessfully from the far superior, if much darker, Patsy Kensett Vehicle 21, which was a hell of a lot more enjoyable than this piece of shit ever could be. Stealing from Peter Davison's Dish of the Day cameo in Hitchhiker's Guide, Whoopi Goldberg shows up with one of those happy, sad theatrical masks bar release on the wall, while 70s character actors like Roscoe Lee Brown and Jill Clayburgh, former Bond Timothy Dalton, and former sex symbol Kathleen Turner, all drop in for a cumulative four minutes of stream time in aggregate. The one who gets the most screen time is then semi-hot indie guy Eric Bogosian, as if anyone outside of the critical circles of the day actually cared about his ass. Tony's the agent who signs off on the kids' play, mostly just sitting there and spying through his moments in the spotlight. Bad, bad, bad. Somehow Scorsese was involved in this, which is all you need to know right there. <laughs> did you see this one? No, I did not, and I don't even think I know about it, which means I'll skip it. <laughs> He didn't do much after this. I don't know if you have any others wanted to talk to, because he did a couple of TV movies, like Bandit, Beauty and the Bandit. He was on a Perry Mason TV movie. He showed up in the Lois and Clark TV series. He probably, yeah, it was probably just small, small things, small things. Yeah, something. little tiny things. Yeah. Suddenly Susan, I mean, CSI. <laughs> uh, and one of them is Mr. Schwartz. That's actually his last performance, Mr. Schwartz and David and Fatima, whatever the hell that is. But that's really it for his career. Mm. And uh, like I said, he ended his life on a strange note where he had suddenly just decided to <laughs> disown all his kids from his will and leave all his money to his uh, young wife, which was like, wow, did she like do that while he was like passed out drunk or something? <laughs> it's not too cool. But, you know, I'm sure Jamie Lee has enough money in her belt to get by, but geez. Yeah, what a shitty thing to do. I seem to remember Jamie Lee Curtis saying at some point in time, I don't know if that was post or pre this, that she was glad that while he was alive, they managed to have a decent relationship better than what yeah. they had for many years before. I don't know if that still holds true, but yeah, you know, I didn't. Yeah, and of course, another thing we could thank Tony Curtis for is Jamie Lee Curtis. <laughs> And that's actually what was weird because I had read some stuff about that and they're like, oh yeah, you know, they had reconciled towards the end and you know how she was doing those movies with her mother, like those Halloween movies. Yeah. Well, she was also hanging with him and they were like, oh yeah, we're reconnecting with a Jewish faith for the first time since God knows when. And, you know, they, they were kind of close together. And then all of a sudden he just does this. I'm like, um, but what happened there? <laughs> but, but then again, I mean, did he, did he have that much money, you know, and, and, you know, did, knows? yeah, he may not have. And so. It may not have affected her anyway. Anyway, that's our Tony Curtis show, I believe, right? Yep, that is it. So uh, next time, I'm not sure what we'll be talking about. <laughs> I think we had mentioned Robert Mitchum as a possible one, but a possible. we have a couple ideas we yeah. can toss around. Yeah. yeah. All right, so thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on the strange career of Tony Curtis, the man who made his way without really going to school and learning English late and gets a lot of real hard knocks in early life. So... 
If you'd like to join us here, contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, and like to join us on air, drop us a line on our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1, also at thirdeyecinema.podbean.com. We're on iTunes. Just look us up under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 5534020044. We're on Spotify. We're on Amazon Podcasts under, again, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to say before we close out the evening? No, uh, actually, uh, I'm glad you guys tuned in for this. And uh, we thank you because, you know, sometimes we do take a very serious look at uh, some of these people that don't always get a positive serious look at. Yeah, a serious look at. Thank you. And and well, uh, we're, we're pleased that. Well, anyway, so uh, was there anything else you want to say about Tony there? Anyway, uh, no, we thank we thank you. We both thank you for Yeah, uh, We don't. Yeah. Who would have thought Tony Curtis would be a subject for a show that we were doing here? But uh, we actually both respect his career. And uh, he did a lot of entertaining movies. You know, some not for everyone, but uh, he was around for a very long time. And God bless you wherever you are, Tony Curtis, because we, we enjoyed the hell out of your movies. I definitely uh, got to kick out certain ones, that's for sure. And, of course, Hollywood Bad One. <laughs> so join us next time for whatever show we're going to be doing. That's right. Hang in there. We'll come up with another one soon. <laughs> Take care, all. Bye-bye. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. 
These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines, from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today and my journey is far from finished, but I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without his scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of new age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell as Doc Savage, Lois Paul, and myself discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. John Belushi, from Killer Bees to the Blues Brothers. He was that fat, crazy guy 
a comic genius who brought a new brand of comedy to television on Saturday Night Live. His wild humor came to the big screen in that movie Animal House, and John Belushi rode the rocket of success. The bigger his fame, the bigger Belushi's drug abuse became. The drugs robbed him of a chance to fulfill his dreams, and they would cost him his life. Yoko urged May to begin the affair that night at a recording session. I've been wanting to do this all bleeding day. May Pang was no match for the needy rock star. You're my first Chinese girl. And while John Lennon was recording the album Mind Games, it became clear that his wife had played some of her own and won. John Lennon was assassinated on December 7, 1980 by a born-again fanatic named Mark David Chapman, a loser whose only purpose was to gain notoriety. Yoko Ono inherited half of Lennon's estate and initiated a press campaign to boost record sales after John's death. As for May Pang, she was left only with her memories. You got a minute? In the uh, summer of uh, 48, New York to L.A. was a traumatic experience for me. One of the first things I did was to buy a convertible and learn how to drive. Not necessarily in that order. There was a used car dealer called Sailor Jacks. I bought this dark green Chevy convertible circa 1935 for $212. With the mileage stuck at 183,000 miles, Sailor Jack told me it was cherry. Well, being from New York, I believed him. About a week later, I was teaching myself to drive on the back lot. I had the top down, showing off me and my car to all the girls who were on the contract. A horse wrangler was out there teaching him to ride. My foot slipped off the clutch, and I slammed into the barn. With hay flying, I came to an abrupt stop. The girls laughed, and the wise-ass wrangler smiled at me and said, You want a horse? Only if it's got automatic transmission. This is Tony Curtis. Thanks for watching. See you next time on Hollywood Babylon. Hello, I'm Tony Curtis. Welcome to Hollywood Babylon. Errol Flynn, swashbuckling star of Hollywood's epic adventure films of the 1930s. His lust for young girls got him into trouble. Errol Flynn and the two teenagers who made him pay for his passion. Errol Flynn was one of Hollywood's handsomest superstars, a man with a reputation as a great lover, both on and off the screen, as a swashbuckler, huh? as a fencer. He was often cast in roles defending the honor of lovely young virgins. Off-screen, that's what he wanted. Flynn worked hard at living up to his image, and his flamboyant lifestyle often got him into serious trouble. While the jury deliberated his fate, Flynn lived up to his reputation. On his way out of the courtroom, he flirted with a teenager at the candy stand. Mr. Flynn. Yes, uh, could I have a pack of Luckies, please? Tell me, are you lucky? That depends on what you're looking for. 
the flamboyant star left Hollywood in the 1950s a broken and bankrupt man. He returned four years later to attempt a comeback. Flynn was just beginning to work again when his luck and time ran out. He died of a heart attack. At the time of his death, he was in love with a 15-year-old actress. The dazzling charm of this highly visible screen castle actually masked a deep sense of insecurity. The Hollywood lifestyle ultimately drove Flint to drink. Towards the end of his career, he fell back on tongue-in-cheek parodies of his earlier swashbuckling roles. Errol Flynn died in 1959. He was just 50 years old. Have you got a minute? Good. I was driving the Carbon Beach in Malibu in my second-hand blue Riviera convertible with Dynaflow Drive on the top down. I stopped. Then I noticed a film company shooting down at the beach. So I moseyed on down and stopped about 50 feet from where everyone was working. I couldn't get enough of the experience of making a movie. I'd done two bits by then, and I felt like a veteran. Out of everything that looked like chaos, there was a procedure that went unnoticed. When the actors weren't working, the crew was, setting up for a shot. The director was standing on the outskirts of the company, waiting for them to get ready. I didn't recognize the actors and the uh, director caught sight of me and he kept looking at me every now and then he finally came up to me and asked me if I could swim I said yeah he said would you like to pick up 20 bucks all you got to do is come out of the ocean and come up the beach while the actors in the foreground are playing that scene I said okay but I don't have a suit he said wardrobe will get you one well there I was suited up and in the surf when the director waved at me that was my cue to come out of the water and I did I did it at least 35 times from different angles. I was cold and wet. But I was in the movies and flirting with a beautiful makeup girl named Diana from the Valley with uh, and very long legs. And that night, with that 20 I made that day, I took Diana to Bonnie's Beanery for dinner. She was the first girl I had dated since I'd come to California. <laughs> I was a lucky dude. She turned out to be the niece of the head of Columbia Pictures, Harry Cohn. California, here I come. 